Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stamor Major, and welcome to another episode of ABC of Boating, and this time we're on D, and this uh, this week's podcast has been selected by, <laughs> I realized I didn't have the name to hand, so I'm going to put it in here later. Okay, it was actually very easy, and then it's Kev. Hey, Kev, it's Kev. Le Poix de Vin. I'm getting better at that, but I've worked it out, Kev. I can just call you Kev LP. So Kev LP sent this one on. D is for damage. Thanks very much for that, Kev. Okay, good. I'm glad. You know, the trickiest thing, I've got all these different um, social media platforms. Sometimes people are writing to Spartan. Some people are writing to me personally. If you want to get in contact, csmthemariner at gmail.com will get straight to me. And I know that it relates to the podcast. Um, the person whose name I put into the gap earlier. Thank you very much. Um, it's a very good idea, this one. So the D is for damage. Damage. Now, we did one which was um, B is for boating. And that was cool because I think it's really important to kind of get down to the basics of things and like work out, you know, <laughs> it's like the most simple thing, isn't it? B is for what? It's for boat. Okay, so let's get that out of the way. But the idea I think which people are liking is the concept that I just have to uh, talk about this like off the top of my head essentially. And that, uh, that definitely suits my um, <laughs> my style. But um, yeah, to do the boating one, I really had to kind of look through Wikipedia to, to make sure I could give you some proper facts. But D is for damage is a, is a very, very intelligent um, thing to, to ask me about because it, it, it speaks exactly to the concept of this ABC of boating. What does a professional sailor have in their head that then keeps you safe should things get a little bit you know out of out of shape so uh damage can occur at any time can't it that's exactly what you want to know again this person like keep us safe and, and keep this boat afloat and keep the the crew safe so damage well how should we break this up well um let's start with what is a mayday and a pan pan and those things first so um, we've got these different levels of uh, emergency, which we can uh, speak out on the VHF channel 16, and we can indicate to those around us that we have one of three levels of, uh, of, of information that we want to transmit that relate to three different levels of, uh, of, of information or, or, or seriousness rather. So um, security, 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 um, that's normally kind of like information for mariners it might be that there's something in the water it might be that there's a boy moved it might be there's a channel blocked it might be there's a ship coming in if you're just off a port it could be all sorts of things but it's going to be mostly kind of info info bullets that need to come to you in that area and uh, and give you information um going up from there is pan 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 is a uh second level let's say of of, of seriousness and uh, it may relate to the fact that you have, um, yeah, you've damaged your boat, but you're okay. Uh, a crew member is injured, but they're okay and you're dealing with it. Um, that you have some concerns about something you see around you. It's a kind of, um, you know, you're going to the hospital, but you're not going to the emergency room. It's that kind of situation. The one at the top of the tree is Mayday. And Mayday is the one which has a, a number of functions. Firstly, obviously, as you uh, start saying Mayday, Mayday, Mayday into your VHF, I think it indicates to you that something is going on. It indicates to everybody around you, but if you've got the VHF in your hand and you're saying mayday, mayday, mayday into it, and it's not an exercise, 
that should be the point in which you wake up to the fact that uh, something's going on. So um, off the boat, uh, wherever that is received, Mayday uh, clears the airwaves. It pushes aside all other traffic and uh, it instigates a circumstance where a Joint Services Response Center, JSRC, will uh, start to liaise with you, start to talk to you if, um, if they're within range or another ship will cancel anything else it's doing uh, with its VHF and will start to talk to you and everybody should be should be silent um, if uh, if you do get into a situation where you're hearing a mayday and it's uh, it's being repeated then you're the one that needs to start to talk to that person and you may get into a mayday relay which is where you are then passing it on if you think of the area of uh, influence that your VHF has around you. It depends on the height of the mast, but it's going to basically be straight line. Um, VHF can skip. Certainly at night, it can skip further. Um, the way it bounces across the underside of the... Uh, that's, <laughs> I don't want to get drifting off into how VHFs work. I think v, v may be for VHF, but it starts to skip inside the atmosphere, let's say, and we'll get a little bit further, but mostly it's line of sight. So if you've got a tall mast and your VHF and Terry's up the mast, you can have a kind of zone around you that... Um, your VHF is going to be operational in. And that zone does go up into the air. Let's consider that also airplanes and things. So a vessel may be in distress. It's doing mayday, mayday. And its zone of operation for its VHF, its transmission range, only gets it so far. If you're inside it, then you can start to transmit and communicate with them and your zone of uh, operation, your transmission range, may be enough to get you to somebody else and you can kind of pass it along the chain maybe you can get to jsrc maybe you can get to a ship maybe you can get to the coast guard whatever it is but you can kind of link all those different um transmission ranges those zones zones of uh, operation of those vhfs link them together and then you will act as the in-between but mayday 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 going down the vhf channel 16 something is happening <laughs> so uh they say that you remember um you remember what you hear last the longest. So I'm going to go, I'm going to write a little note here and I'm going to cover um, how to send a mayday at the very end of this. And then if nothing else, when you wake up from your stupor at the end of this, um, we'll be talking about how to send a mayday. And if we if we do no more than teach people how to send a good melee, mayday uh, message, uh, then my, my job will be done. But let's imagine we are on the horn uh, shouting down the phone that um, we have got a mayday. Um, damage or injury has occurred, damage to people, damage to the boat. Something has happened which is outside of the ordinary and we need to now act and maybe get some assistance. So... How do we break these things up? What is going to constitute a mayday? I think is a good place to start with this. A mayday is when there is grave or imminent danger to the vessel or crew. So question I often ask when I've got my um, crew on board and we're learning about uh, man overboard, is man overboard a security, a pan pan or a mayday? Well, for those who know, of course, it is a mayday. When you're in the water, I don't care where you are, I don't care what the situation is, unless you have chosen to go in there um, in your bathing costume, then we have a very serious situation that uh, we need to be aware of. So things like somebody going into the water, grounding, collision, fire, all these things would be uh, damage, which is uh, definitely part of a mayday. If you lose your rudder, that could be mayday worthy if you don't know how to fix it. If you do know how to fix it, it may be a pan-pan that you are now maneuvering with difficulty, you've had to reduce sail. But if that situation all ends up on a lee shore, might upgrade to a mayday-mayday. So 
Let's look at those areas which would be uh, covered under a, a mayday, and that's maybe the best way of kind of keeping it in tight. Um, uh, D is for damage, could be, could be anything, you know. My, my confidence in the chef is damaged by this dinner. Uh, my confidence in the Fordeck crew is damaged by the state of that spinnaker. All these things are damaged, right? But uh, we'll stick to the big ones now. So um, let's start first. Uh, I want to get some stories into this. I think I've had most of these things. Let's start with grounding. So grounding is something which can be not serious at all. Um, you bump the bottom. You're in a boat that's only 35, 36 foot long. It draws I know, five foot, something like that. And uh, you and your mates get out over the bow and put your shoulders to it and push it back off. This is not a massive issue. Now let's upgrade it a little bit. What happens if we hit a little bit harder? Well, then we may well be getting into a situation where we're damaging the, um, the structure of the vessel and we need to be aware of that. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit now. Um, if you hit the keel on, uh, on something on the bottom, where rock, sand, whatever it might be. Your best choice is to hit sand and mud, obviously. Um, rock and coral, not so good. Uh, coral is something which in the uh, Caribbean Sea, you have to be a little bit cautious of. I'm thinking when I go into Antigua, we often go to Jolly Harbor, um, which is on the, it's on the west side, like the southwest corner of Antigua. And uh, there's a good reef that comes, it's just to the south of Antigua. You come out of Jolly Harbor and like hook to the south. And uh, there's a good reef there. And I, and I learned this with um, one of the Volvo 60s I drove. Uh, we clipped a, a bombing of uh, coral there. So you get these big uh, corals. Is that brain coral that gets that big? I don't know. Like some kind of coral. Luckily, we didn't. We did see us for cooking, not see us for coral. It's been very short. But um, we call them bombies, like a big bomby of coral. Um, they can grow, obviously, based on whatever's going on in their world and may not be exactly where the last sounding of the reef was. So you can have it where we hope reefs are getting bigger, obviously. But as you get close to the edge of the reef, what may have been uh, a shallow point last time it was surveyed or looked at, which could be 10, 20, 50, 100 years ago, that's now grown up. Clipping one of those, you may as well be clipping rock. Um, if you're in and around the Canary Islands, for example, they're all volcanic. I can remember being in there, Volvo 60 again, and what was the situation there? Oh yeah, the, it was really blowing, like blowing super hard, and the harbour master was asking us to go into this other dock that was like further down and out the way. I don't particularly know why, because it was literally blowing 45 knots. It's the worst possible boat to try and move in heavy wind because there's only a foot of it in the water. That's these race boats have almost nothing in the water and they're thin, thin keel going down to a massive um, chunk of lead on the bottom, 7,800 kilos of lead on the bottom of the thing, four and a half meters down and, oh no, three and a half meters down that one. And um, he he asked us to move, he asked us to move. I was like, no, 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 no. And there was a bit of a break in it and probably as it was passing over, okay, we'll move it now. So we popped out at the spot, um, I was trying to move quickly and get to the dock and get tied on before the other side of this thing hit. And um, wow, if we didn't back straight into the pen and could chunk right onto the right onto the keel, um, it was uh, a very hard impact. And it's because the harbor master didn't understand quite how deep the boat is. We get that a lot with deep boats. Once you're over three meters something, they look at it and just go, yeah, yeah, no, no, you should move down there because they think it's some kind of um, full keel situation. I had that when I was in, uh, where was that, Grenada after an arc race. <laughs> and I talked to the guys. It was, um, oh, what's that called where the, where the arc finishes? Uh, something Simpson, Simpson Bay, is that right? That sounds about right. Or is that, hang on, Simpson Bay is in, 
I don't know, all these bloody places. It was on this island, right? It was lovely. It was tropical. I don't know what was going on. And um, he, uh, <laughs> we got into his, um, his uh, pen, his uh, travel left well, and uh, backed in, like, erp, like stopped. That wasn't a big deal because uh, it was a lot of mud. So I kind of went forward, went backwards, went forwards and backwards. Got the, uh, the keel to kind of drag its way. Uh, further into the um, keel well which is very normal on deep boats like you end up pushing a lot of mud um, and uh, we lifted it out and you could see his face this guy as this uh, Volvo 60 went higher and higher and higher in fact if you watch the the Mariner videos on YouTube I think it's like number 11 or something I give a tour around the boat and you see some images of, of those lifting the boat out and as this keel goes down and down and down it's like you can see his eyes going like, ah, uh, I'm not sure we can actually put this on stands. And we ended up like on the top of the tallest stands they had with literally like eight big ratchet straps holding the boat and everything. Please get all the halyards out. Please get everything off, get the boom down, get the sails off it, get everything off. And it was fine. They were very, very good. It was a great yard and they lined us up with the prevailing winds and all that kind of stuff. But um, if you've got a deep boat, in the end, you're going to clip the bottom. And um, how serious does it get? Well, obviously... There's a lot of lead on your keel or a lot of a lot of keels have lead on them which is good it, it's dense it's low down um, it also does a great job of absorbing a bit of an impact and if someone's being borrowing your boat like obviously i've got captains that drive my boats and it comes back you're like ah what's um what's this uh, rearrangement at the front of the keel here so there's um and then they say to me it's what you did when you drove the boat I'm like, oh okay yeah um so uh clipping things hitting things if you go uh, charging in and and uh, smack the front edge of your keel, the leverages that the leverage moments which are created, the forces which are created on the end of the keel, can end up uh, exceeding what the structure of the boat is rated for. So, say again for like for a race boat, we don't always talk about race boats because not everyone's um, obviously got that kind of boat, but it's, it's it's the extreme of what a boat can be. So it's it's a good example. When uh, designers are designing keels on boats, they uh, look at the, the grounding um, forces, which will be on the boat. If this boat hits at this speed and then, you know, five knots, 10 knots, 15 knots, what's going to be the grounding forces and can the structure take it? Um, it's something that we're aware of if we want to do things like tune boats up and make the keels longer and what we call turbo a boat where you make a deeper keel on it. So it's got more writing moment. Um, it may be that that process is limited by the structure of the boat and then the, the structure of the boat needs to be um it needs to be increased but uh with a, a normal boat a production boat what are you looking at uh, for the structure that the keel is attached to most time the keel goes into some kind of keel box some kind of central reinforced area which is attached to the to the ribs to the frames of the boat and the loads from the keel are distributed around primarily around the center area of the boat but obviously stretching up right up to the deck right forward to the bow and distributed every which way if you've got something like a grand soleil or a x yacht off the top of my head they have um, galvanized steel frames inside and um, they offer a lot of protection for uh, grounding moments but they still can be damaged by by such a activity so what's to look for what's to be worried about in the event of grounding the boat the first thing you have to do is check for injuries because people you know, stop dead and go flying, dislocate shoulders, fall down the companionway, fall over and account for all the crew. As that's happening, parallel process that the floorboards need to come up and you need eyes on the keel bolts and you need eyes on the keel box and you need to have eyes basically as much as you can get all around underneath the boat. And that needs to continue being assessed until you get it to the dock and get it tied to something 
that it, it cannot sink, right? That's, you just have to keep looking all the time. I remember um, a friend of mine when I lived in Hong Kong, um, oh, what was his name now? Oh my goodness, I forget. Oh, oh well, well maybe you'll come to me as I'm going along. Grand Soleil 46, um, clipped it under kite, going back into the marina. Uh, from everybody that was on board, they weren't doing much more than six, seven knots, something like that. You remember a 40 foot boat, it, you know, getting over a 8.3 knots is, is tricky unless you're surfing. So if you're just too long with friends and you hit and you don't know what the speed is, just assume it's hull speed. Don't, don't, there's no point like trying to go, oh, I think it was four knots because uh, if you're wrong and the forces were much larger than you think, then you're now driving around in a boat that's broken, which the boatyard has told you is okay because they took your, took your numbers to heart and told you, yeah, three knots, four knots, it'll be fine. If you actually struck it eight knots, best to tell them and work on that so the thing doesn't fall apart under you. But um, I remember he was called Glenn Smith, Glenn Smith. And um, Glenn's boat uh, clipped the bottom and it was called Blackjack and... Uh, few people fell over there wasn't too much to be said about it but then when they got into the dock and the keel um the, the keel the, the keel the deck um came up the sole boards came up um what became immediately apparent was that the galvanized frame inside this boat had been bent upwards and where's the place to look for damage if you strike going forwards the back edge of the keel may be pushed up into the boat the front edge of the keel may be pulled down. Think about how that works. The, the keel box is strong, the frames are strong, but in the event that um, you act uh, on the front edge of the keel and just stop it dead, the boat tries to rotate around the front edge of the keel. It can do that to a certain degree, but then the buoyancy of the bow starts to take over and it cannot depress the bow any further into the water. The stern of the boat will lift up in the air. So there's quite a good kind of release process there on the boat. But um, it may well be that you end up in a situation those forces cannot be released and um, you've now damaged the underside of the boat. What can you do in the event that this damage occurs? So we're checking for people. We're checking for damage on people, of course. We're not going to go into like the, the medical stuff here. I'm quite happy to do that on another one. It's another great, uh, what, what uh, maybe F is for first aid or something. I don't know. We'll have a see. As, uh, I haven't got that far ahead yet. I mean, <laughs> just got up to D and I'm sitting down to do it. Um, but uh, let's let's just leave the medics aside. You're, you know, whatever's going on with the medical situation, something separate. The boat, we need to be very aware of the fact that the keel may be, the keel area around the top of the keel may be damaged and we may have water coming in. If water's coming in, you have a very serious situation because you have a major component in the boat now has been subjected to forces it was never designed to take. Um, if you've got water coming in this sort of situation, you need to start rigging as though the boat's going to sink. The, the frightening thing is with water on boats, um, it's, it's a very simple uh, number to remember. If you have a one inch hole, one meter below the waterline, I know I'm mixing up um, different, uh, different um, metric value and imperial values here, but don't worry, one inch hole, one meter below the waterline, it will let in 10,000 liters in one hour. Okay, so we go metric and imperial and we get all these number ones together. One inch, one meter below the waterline will let in 10,000 liters in one hour. So we've got a bit of a problem, right? <laughs> this is gonna be a problem. So two and a half thousand gallons coming through a two and a half inch hole, three feet below the waterline. There we go, how's that in one hour? Um, the, the amount of water that will come in. So if you've got like a, 
you know, if you've got a Volvo 60, uh, my, my Volvo 60, the uh, gross tonnage, the, the volume estimated down below when we do the commercial stuff is 30 uh, gross tons. So the internal volume of the boat, excluding machinery spaces, which is tiny on that boat, is about 30,000 liters, the internal volume of the space. I would love someone to help me just understand if I'm getting that right. It's definitely how I've always seen it. And from the unfortunate experience that I had, I've seen a boat of similar size go down the same way. Uh, it's uh, if I was to get a one inch hole, one meter below the waterline, which for me would be like on the underside of the hull, uh, not obviously my keel goes deep in that, but on the underside of the hull, that sprout of water that's going to come into the boat, it's going to take three hours to sink the boat. So <laughs> you better be able to stop it. Now, trying to stop a, uh, a round hole because one of your through hole fittings has come off is not that difficult perhaps as long as you're careful and smart about it it's not quite as simple as it may seem in the uh, you know thought of things you do alongside it when you're doing your training but you can get it stopped quite simply obviously you can put your hand over a round hole that's easy if you're dealing with the back of a keel which has been ripped up you've got damage to the actual underside of the boat you're in a much trickier situation because what exactly you're going to tap in there what exactly is going to be your solution the problem with fiberglass is that if you start tapping things in you're probably going to be tapping something like soft wooden plugs in or you may have another good thing that i've seen people bring is um uh shingles or shakes now if you're in north america you know what i mean or talking about the thin wooden slats that go on the front of a house or on the roof of a house uh, if you're in europe in england um th these are oldie weldy <laughs> to us obviously most things are built out of brick and concrete in those countries but they're thin wedge shaped about i don't know what they like 10 inches long four to five inches maybe wider six inches wide and they're made of the same kind of materials as the soft wooden plugs and they have that same key ingredient which is that they expand okay your soft wood plugs that go in the boat they always say on these um these races i do are the soft wood plugs tied close to the through hole fitting and i can see what they're getting at with that because clearly in the event of something coming off the inside of the hull or rupturing you want to just be able to reach for a softwood plug and put it in the hole the problem is if certainly on my boats i always had tying it close to the uh, through hole fitting it means it's going to be down in the bilge if there's any water in the bilge the plug is going to already be soaked part of the function of the softwood plugs is that they're dry you tap them gently into where they go meant to go that where that problem is where water's gushing in and then it swells slightly and fixes the fixes the leak for you it doesn't always work like that but it, oftentimes it will um if you've got something like a uh, a, a rupture in the keel like a split on the back of the uh, keel um, then you've got uh, a very different shaped hole allowing in water. Now the cross section of that may be very close to a one inch hole. So if you've got a smaller boat than mine, maybe you've got a volume of 10,000 liters inside the boat. So if that's not stopped in any way, shape or form, the boat will sink in an hour, okay? You have to start looking at it that way. It's, you know, do it on your boat. Don't be afraid of the sea coming in. It's, uh, you know, everybody kind of when they're changing the, um, the speedo out and cleaning the speedo off people are always like don't let the water in the boat uh, why don't you let it in for a little while let it in and see how quickly things fill up have a see how your bilge pumps do against it have a see how your buckets go in there have a see how your sponges and your balers and your little stirrup pumps and why don't you have a go with all that stuff now don't do it at sea. <laughs> Maybe do it tied to the dock. Maybe do it where you definitely know you can get that thing back in. Like I'm not. I'm not in any way saying do anything dangerous whatsoever. But it would be nice just to see 
how fast that lot comes in because even a good little sprout of water that comes from our depth sounder is going to be quite serious after a while. Um, if you're in a situation where you've got like a, a, a rip in the in the hull or you've got a um, like this we're talking particularly about grounding and then the keel being bashed up into the hull um, you need to father it so fothering is a little bit different fothering is a process of sticking whatever you've got into the hole uh, to stop the water coming in. And I don't know where the word fothering comes from, but I think it's probably uh, what a lot of expletives sound like as water is spraying in your face, I would imagine. Um, you could be using rags, um, sleeping bags, uh, wooden, like the wooden shakes that we talked about that are flat. You go and do the training with the US Coast Guard. They've got a wonderful little um, display um, rig that they pull around behind one of their trucks and it has all this pressurized water and all these cracks and holes and you've got to get in there and like tap things in and secure it and then they pressurize it up and see if it would hold and then they start increasing the pressure until you know they see like when your bungs would blow. So um, little shakes, little chocks, little um, round bungs, like all that kind of stuff is very, very useful. And and I'm a big fan of having like other shaped things on board. Now, I don't just mean the foredeck crew. I mean that there's um, bits of wood of different shapes, that there's bits of dowel, that there's, there's like raw materials that can be used in, in weird situations. Don't just buy everything from, you know, West Marine or something. They're for a particular thing. Have other things that can solve problems. You can get that um, leak stop um, putty. Have you seen that? It's like kind of, it's kind of like a wax but it, it almost is a bit like a big tub of axle grease as well. God knows what it is. But when it's cold, it, um, it's very good at sealing up holes. I would say it's better at sealing up holes in cold water than warm water. In warm water, it does get a little bit soft and it can blow out. But um, if you can get that boof, wedged in to begin with, and then even something like um, putting a load of um, blankets, towels, whatever, in the bilge and then putting heavy things on top of them will just slow that water because bilge pumps. Okay, we're talking about grounding. Obviously, this will apply to collision as well when we get onto that. But if you damage the hull and water's coming in uncontrollably, um, having uh, bilge pumps on the boat clearly is a very important part of the manufacturer's remit, the, uh, any kind of safety authority that in inspects the boat's remit. Um, sensible crew uh, would be looking, make sure there's bilge pumps and uh, any race authority that you go in with, they're gonna look for them as well. But what is the modern bilge pump? It's gonna be an electrical pump with a wire attached and probably a quarter inch, no, sorry, quarter inch, three quarter inch or inch hose that's coming out of that bilge pump, probably going through some kind of one-way valve and then up uh, to a position where it goes over the side of the boat. Now, is that enough to save you in the event of uh, bad things happening? Let's have a look at that number. So you've got a one inch hole, one meter below the water line, it's gonna let in 10,000 liters in one hour. So what do you need to have written on the side of the pump for you to be safe? It's gonna have to say, two and a half thousand gallons per hour. Otherwise, it isn't gonna keep up. Those 500 gallon per hour ones, the thousand gallons per hour ones, what they are is that when they design boats, they're trying to you know, stick inside a budget and they are trying to um, make the services of the boat happen in the most convenient way possible for the designer and for the people that are constructing the boat. So it's kind of the thing of like many boats are built by the, you know, the cheapest uh, 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 bid. 
it's i don't think that's exactly how it goes obviously a lot of serious safety equipment is on boats and it's not always by the lowest bid but at some point somewhere somebody is making sure that they're part of the chain their company is not um, wasting money and bilge pumps is a fantastic one you get on most boats they're going to have something like 700s 800s maybe 1000 1200s something like that but if you want to stop that hole from becoming the end of your nice day out on the water it's going to have to say two and a half thousand gallons on it now the other thing which is useful is uh you know buckets and other methods of pumping the boat and i've, I've been in some pretty serious situations we'll get on to that when we do um collision although it wasn't actually a collision but uh, it, you'll see how the story goes but um uh, a bucket a big bucket is a very good way of uh, doing things um wet vacs can be useful i have a wet vac there's one which if you're in north america if you go to home depot they sell one called uh, bucket head they sell those um 10 i think 10 five five gal buckets sorry the five gal buckets um like three bucks each you can put a rope on them same as uh, any race authority wants so you can theoretically dip them in the water i'm never quite sure exactly why they want those handles on i think if you think about it it's for for pulling them up through the companionway so that somebody can be down below scoop up the water in the bucket and somebody's above and pulls that out of the companionway obviously clearly don't ever throw a bucket in the water that's attached to a lanyard uh because unless the boat is stationary either you're losing the bucket uh, or you're going off the back of the boat uh, and, and if you really have to do it obviously make sure your hand's not through a loop or tied around your hand or wrapped around it or anything else but for me i always see that as being um for for passing them up the companionway in an emergency so i keep um i keep some smaller buckets on board like what would you know class as bucket um uh, but i also keep those five gal buckets as well because five gal buckets on a boat are flipping awesome you know you can you can keep fish in it you can keep food in it you can bail with it you can sit on it you can go to the toilet in it you can use it as a um, they do this fantastic um tool caddies that kind of go around the rim of the bucket so your tools are on the inside held in pockets and on the outside held in pockets like they're such a good thing but the bucket head uh, wet vac is about 20 bucks us it just clips on the top and uh, i remember the lads bringing it home when we were in oh, where were we like san diego or something and i said jesus guys like really do you think this is going to do it i said well you're taking it back to the shop uh, if it takes any more than a minute to fill up when we're, we're not doing it we're not having this it filled a five gal bucket in five seconds so that is a legitimate bilge pumping option now where you'll be very careful with is that you've got high voltage you've got a lot of water hanging around so that's on you you've got to keep that safe but certainly as you come to the end of a bilge pumping operation maybe um that's a very useful commodity but buckets are very good of getting things out and actually the u.s coast guard says a scared man with a bucket is one of the most efficient bilge pumping systems in the world very very true so you have to make sure you build pumper right uh, on the commercial vessels that i'm on we normally have well co commercially registered yachts we normally have um bilge pumping or water pumping uh, arrangements attached to the main engine and you have either some kind of idler gear that you engage or on the boats i have which have uh, ballast pumps you can start to move ballast with um with the pumps and i can move like two and a half thousand liters in five minutes i can shift two and a half ton of ballast across now that has outlets that go into the bilge in a couple of key places and you can then suck water very very quickly and chuck it out over the side some big um, super yachts or bigger super yachts have big engines what they'll do in the engine room is they'll have a y valve on the intakes for the main engines and then in the event of, of engine room flooding you can shift to sucking water 
through the engines, the engine cooling is retrieving water from the engine room bilges. And that's very, very useful. The strum box is on the end of things. But then, um, you know, that's that's you get to a point there where you're like, oh, my God, I think we're going to sink. But the main engines obviously throw out so much water. If you've got something like a, you know, V24 two-stroke Detroit diesel, it could suck a lot of water out and help you out on this one. So um, there's always options. But on your boat, you need to have a look and think like, okay, how how are we going to get the water out of this thing if there's water in it? Because a lot of weird things start to happen. Obviously, you know, you've clipped the bottom, the, you've got damage to the back of the, uh, the, the keel box, it's torn the keel a little bit, the sump is uh, uh, damaged water starts coming in you're fathering it you're doing what it is you want to be very sure that you have uh, a number of different things in your box a lot of times on boats you know we, we literally have toolboxes which have bigger tools at the bottom but metaphorically we always have to have uh, a toolbox which has bigger and bigger tools that we can unpack deeper and deeper down into the toolbox and what i mean by that is that you know first thing you do is you switch on the bilge pumps awesome and then you realize man that's uh that's a bit kind of water still coming up a bit there so you go then you turn on the big bilge pump and then you go and get the drop-in immersion pump and then you go and get the two-stroke uh salvage pump and then you get the engines involved and then you get the buckets so can you see how this is going like there's options thinking that you're going to like press a button and those little piddly uh bilge pumps are magically going to take away your troubles it's just that's just a hope and a dream and that's not a good way to go to sea so um uh, what can we say about bilge pumps um bilge pumps are Bilge pumps are rated for that number that's on the top of them with a very minimal lift. So if they have to lift water from the bilge up one meter, the amount of water that they're going to be sending out is less than is rated on the top of them. It's also rated for the uh, a larger diameter pipe. When you're talking about a bilge pump, you're talking about a centrifuge pump. So it's basically a fan spinning around in the water and the water slides up, you know, centripetal, centripetal, centrifugal. I always get those mixed up. Centrifugal, oh, I don't know now. Centrifugal force, I think it is. Centripetal pushes in, centrifugal pushes out. Okay, centrifugal force, I'm going to go with. Got 50-50 chance of getting it right. Centrifugal force flings the water out to the outside body. The vein is spinning around. The water is being uh, is entering the pump in the center of the veins. And as they spin around, centrifugal force spins them to the outside of the area that the fan blades are turning in. And on that outer edge is uh, some pickup point, which then sends it off down the pipe. So it's using kinetic energy of that fan to like fling the water off down the pipe. It's good. It moves a lot of water, but it is absolutely completely dependent on the cross section of the pipe that is going out through if the cross section of the pipe is narrower than was expected by the designer it will not move as much water if there's any impediment you've got that one-way valve in there because you don't want the water to run back down the bilge well that one-way valve is an impediment if there's hair in the strum box that's slowing down how much water can get into it it's, there's a number of factors that make it um, difficult for that pump to reach its best. And of course, that's when it's getting like maxi chat voltage and the thing is um, whizzing around at f fastest possible speed. So um, you want to make sure that the, uh, the bilge pumps are in their most what's the best way I put it, most optimal kind of form here that the outputs are low. Uh, you know, the other thing is that you don't have to like have all of your bilge pumps going out into the uh, other side of the boat. You can pump into the anchor locker at the front you could pump into the uh, cockpit or something you could have a drop-in bilge pump which you know has got like a big capacity and it just pump it into the cockpit like that kind of thing is possible um, obviously you can have manual bilge pumps now the manual bilge pumps are going to be 
probably made by Whale uh, or Henderson or someone, Whale and Henderson, the same guys, but um, you're gonna have some, your, your gusher pump, that big um, diaphragm there. A diaphragm pump is a great way to pressurize water and get it out uh, of the boat. It's not uh, it's not as sensitive to the cross-section of the of the outgoing pipe, but you need to make sure the valves are right, that there's no impediments there, that the little flapper valves inside are in good condition, that the handles always clipped right next to it so it's ready to go all these things uh must be all lined up and dialed in so that when that moment comes where there's water coming and you're not expecting you've got a plan now what can you do in the event that you've got like a big problem if you read um 117 days adrift by uh morris and marilyn bailey it's an eye-opening read because they end up how big is their boat like 30 i think it's like 36 foot or something they're in the the middle of nowhere Trolling along, lovely day, clip something, boom, boom, boom. There's a bit of noise under the boat, and then they realize there's some water in the boat. And they start to look all through under the sole boards. They can't find anything. They conclude that the leak is somewhere behind the galley. But by the time they've worked that out, water is up to their knees in a 36-foot boat, at which point they make a very intelligent decision that this problem may not resolve. We, we, we may have to leave the boat. So they start to make these other arrangements and indeed unfortunately the boat sinks in uh, in in calm weather on a sunny day and then they are 117 days adrift a fantastic book and the best part of that book is there is a picture i think it's either at the front page or the very last page and it's um they took a picture of a life raft at sea uh, seen from a vessel is a black and white picture but seen from a vessel and the the life raft is only like a hundred meters away or something it's like a tiny distance away and it's completely invisible and i think that's one thing i took many things from that book but um the uh the fact of how how hard it is to spot these life rafts and that but anyway i digress as always so um bilge pumps make sure you've got other options we can talk about that on another day we can do bilge pumps a particular thing but um, make sure it's right in the event of having damage where water is coming to the boat through a grounding make sure everybody's okay make sure that you are immediately looking at the area around the keel. I would say also check your backstays. Yeah, you could have some weird moment, particularly if you've got a spinner crop where a huge amount of force goes onto the top of the mast and the um, boat is then um, potentially has some issue. If you've got a weakness in your rigging, it's definitely going to exploit it, isn't it? Um, what are we going to be calling? We're going to be calling Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. Okay, this is this is something where you need to have it that people around you know what's going on. And I think this is a good point to have a, a chit chat about Mayday. Oh, you know, what? I'm gonna have a cup. I'm gonna have a gulp of my tea first, else it's gonna be completely cold. Hmm. This really is like talking on the deck of a boat, right? We've gotta gotta get the tea in as well. So, um, Mayday. Let's have a chat about that. So, um. I've, I've been around this a little while and uh, the reason I asked at the beginning of this, you know, is a person in the water a mayday pan pan or security is that some people think it's a pan pan, which is petrifying to me that you would think that somebody going into the water is uh, is not like the most serious thing that can happen. Now, my perspective obviously is someone that sails offshore and more than that, it's somebody who sails on um, boats that are primarily always over 60 foot. Now that, that, presents a particular kind of challenge if somebody's in the water and even if you take um uh, nova scotia won the uh, the open 60 it the freeboard on the thing is well when i'm standing in the dinghy alongside it my head is just above the tow rail so that what's that like 
five foot, six foot or something. I guess I'm standing in the dinghy, it's six foot. So it's six foot from the water up. So if you're trying to get somebody out of the water, there are lots of ways to reduce that. I, you know, we'll talk about Manobo another time, but um, it's a big deal trying to get somebody back up and and a, you know 60 foot boat i would say that nova scotia one is probably the uh the lightest one i'm going to be driving for a while she's nine thousand kilos what's that like uh twenty thousand pounds um trying to maneuver her alongside a person in the water is a very very dangerous maneuver obviously your little head is uh, an eggshell to the sledgehammer which i'm driving so um i'm always uh it's very easy for me to say that somebody going into the water is is a mayday however um all authorities on this agree with me across the range of boats it doesn't matter if it's a tiny little j boat or um you know in some kind of dinghy situation can can have very serious ramifications now i'm not saying call mayday if you fall off a dinghy <laughs> clearly not but okay what would be my grounds for that here's the thing if you fall into cold water there is an involuntary gas there is a physiological reaction to going into the cold water and as you hit the cold water you like suck in and that means you're getting water down your windpipe you can go, cough it all out okay you're in the water and you're doing okay someone circles around comes back gets you great no problem at all you go down below because you're cold and wet and you're changing your gear <laughs> still coughing a little bit still coughing a little bit going into the next couple of hours you're still <laughs> coughing a little bit you go to sleep you wake up you're coughing a lot what's happening here when you sucked in the seawater, there's lots of little um, live things in there. There's live animals, there's live flora and fauna, and there's a lot of salt. And that is gone down into your lungs. It's in amongst your ravioli, or what they called av avioli, down there in your lungs. And um, it's very difficult to get them out. There's no like method of getting out where you can do like drink water directly into your lungs and slosh it all around and spit it back out it's not going to happen whatever's in there is now in there now the water will be um, absorbed into your body it can it can deal with that you know that's not the biggest issue anybody that's done any white water kayaking or something rivers you know obviously you get a lot of water up your nose and your lungs you cough it out no problem at all if you're on freshwater lakes no problem at all but in the open ocean that stuff goes in there your body can start having an issue with the things which are left in there, the detritus that's left in there. You think about what's left, what what smell comes out of a filter, on like an engine filter. It's left for a little while. You take the top off. God, geez, it stinks, doesn't it? When you take the top off, because all those little things are dying. Well, now they're dying inside your lungs, and that's when you get pulmonary edema and you go into secondary drowning. So somebody going into the water in a quite benign situation who has then got water into their lungs and continues to cough, there is grave or imminent danger to that crewman as they lie in their bunk at 11 o'clock that night and you're all tooting along eating biscuits and not worrying about it. So Mayday is often um, deferred by pro skippers let's put it that way. let me blame it on pros first and then we won't because i think you know if you're a professional then you know better and if you're coming into it if you're amateur if you're new to it um you, you can almost it's almost uh it's almost a moral accident you you don't really know what's going on but um if you're a professional you've been doing this a long time and somebody goes into the water that is a mayday i don't i don't care <laughs> there's no other option now you can call a mayday and then resolve the mayday. That's okay, yeah? A lot of people don't call mayday because they don't want to admit that they dropped somebody in the water. They'll uh, just, just just call Pam Pan or say quiet. Or if you're saying with Skipper, someone like that, don't ever go on that boat again because this person is so out of their depth that they're trying to like hide their mistakes from other like 
boaters and and the 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 coast guard or the jsrc they're trying to hide their mistake from somebody at the risk of the person that's gone into the water and unfortunately there are lots of situations where people who really are professionals make very poor judgment there was a situation with the rya uh, or rya um i think were they yacht masters i think they were yacht masters they were out doing uh yacht master now they were doing yacht master instructor course so they are learning how to instruct yacht masters if i remember the story correctly and they're in the solent in the uk and uh, one went into the water and the others just kept following this like the old let's say rya dogma of how they were going to retrieve this person from the water without using the engine uh, and it took so long that the person um, unfortunately died either on the boat or on the way to hospital they finally said no we can't do this let's get the engine go and get them but you see how a professional point of view or semi-professional point of view there led to the wrong outcome just because someone's a pro doesn't mean that they um they, they know all the answers. I remember when I was an Outward Bound instructor, they used to say that the most likely time that anybody that comes on an Outward Bound course will see your professionalism is when you open your first aid kit and administer something small to them. You know, the gloves go on, the questions are right, the setting is right, you know, everything's being done safe. The, the way that you act through that is when they get a glimpse of what you actually know and the rest of the time it should be hidden. The same with being a skipper, it should be flawless, it should be smooth, it should be relaxed, it should be in hand with lots left over and the ability to be humble and admit mistakes and in the event of something happening which is clearly very serious and grave or imminent danger to the vessel or to the crew has happened, that they should be absolutely the first one to say go and call for help here. Okay, so uh, a little bit of a mayday ramp, but it's um, man alive. I've I've come across that a few times, and actually, unfortunately, I think it was the sailor Osaka in 1997 out of Hong Kong. There was a death there on one of the boats. I can't remember the exact situation now, but I have a feeling that one of the details. I can't remember the name of the boat, but somebody went into the water. Maybe even the skipper went into the water thinking about it. God, that's casting my mind back a little bit. But definitely there was a thing where there was a reticence on behalf of that vessel to, to call for Mayday as soon as it could have been done. They were in the middle of a fleet of boats. All sorts of boats could have been activated from that very first moment. It wasn't done. And unfortunately, that person was lost. So anybody going in the water. And the thing is, um, you know, we are in a situation on vessels at sea where there is a quasi-militaristic kind of structure to what's going on, right? We, we have a captain and we have the mate and we have the crew. The captain's word is law and all the rest of it. But um, if you're going to get chucked off a crew, if you're going to get thrown in the brig for mutiny, uh, the best time to do it is when you call Mayday because the captain won't. So... <laughs> And if any captain wants to argue with me, my email address is csmthemariner at gmail.com. Bring all your friends. All right, so uh, what are we doing? Damage. So we've hit the bottom, blah, blah, blah. Keel maybe stuffed up into the boat. It's going to need a lot of work. Take it easy. Follow the hole if water's coming in. Check for people. Check for uh, leakage. Um, get to the dock as soon as you can. And obviously be aware of the fact that at this point, um, you're best going downwind, um, not putting stress on that keel. The sails, if they can, come down or are massively reduced. We're keeping a constant watch on what's going on with that keel. We've got our life bats, life bats, our life boats, our, our, our life rafts rather, our grab bag, um, once only suits, your thermal protective aids or your dry suits, like all that stuff's ready to go, all ready to go. Um, I guess, yeah, okay, let's, let's go down this path. 
do you remember the vessel Chiki Rafiki? I want you to remember the vessel Chiki Rafiki. I met the guys of uh, Chiki Rafiki, unfortunately, uh, just before they left uh, Antigua uh, to head off across the Atlantic. And if you ever go to Antigua, go to the galley bar, which is in um, uh, the dock dockyard, uh, Nelson's dockyard. And uh, as you go in, I think it's just above the bar on the left side, it says Chiki Rafiki. And uh, unfortunately, that vessel was lost at sea. We don't need to go fully into exactly what happened. Maybe it's for another day. We can discuss it. Uh, another idea I had for um, a podcast is uh, to look at MAIB, the Marine Accident Investigation Bureau. Look at the reports, look at what happened and learn from others' mistakes. I know that they would want people to learn from it, but unfortunately the situation that happened with them without going to the too much of the detail without having the report in front of me. I don't want to say anything that's not right, but the keel came off. Okay, so they're in the middle of the Atlantic. They reported there was an issue. The keel bolts were moving, and unfortunately, they weren't. A lot of things happened, but then in the end, they were not heard from again. And when the vessel was found, the keel had come off. So the damage which has happened when you strike the bottom may not be everything that's happening. It may get worse later on. You do not want the keel to then having to be taking sailing loads um, and uh, shorten everything down if you can, blow before the wind if you can, hold position and wait for someone to come and get you if you need to. And I would say then you're doing that under much reduced um, storm sails and, and hove to or put your power anchor out or whatever it is or running up the beach. Yeah, that's one thing that uh, is not very popular. Now, you have to be very careful about running things up the beach. It can appear that the beach is um, gently shelving from the shore. Um, and then you get there and find out, wow, it's really steep. If you can get an angle on the beach, if you can check the rest of the island, I mean, an angle is like kind of, you know, approach from different angles and sort of see what's going on and try and look at the seagulls running up and down the beach. Do they run up the beach and get very high? That means the beach is steep. We used to do this a lot when we did um, ocean kayaking expeditions and you'd be coming into some beach and I've, I've, I've got it wrong a couple of times and come into a, hey guys, are you all ready to go in? Yeah, fine, no problem. We go in, blimey, the front of the boat hits the beach and the next wave just washes everybody into a mess uh, alongside a really steep beach. So um, look out for what you're doing. But at the end of the day, if it's getting that bad, like you think, jeepers, I think this keel is going to come off this sucker and there's something nearby, put the boat on the beach because at least you'll get ashore from that. If you're out there and the keel comes off, what exactly happens next? Well, let's discuss that. All right. We're talking about damage, I guess. You know, I've got... <laughs> I go and get yourself another tea. This is going to be a two hour one. I think it might have to be a second lap with the dog here. Um, all your household chores will get done though. Um, what do we do if the keel comes off? We strike something, that's the damage we're talking about. It all looks like it's okay. It's uh, There's a, a, a crease and a, and a crack maybe on the back of the keel, but you've got lots of um, blankets on it. You've got heavy weights on it. You've got the boards up. You're watching. There's uh, You've sent out your mayday, but the nearest ship is three hours away. They're going to come and um, either take you off or do whatever. How are you going to know what to do if the keel comes off? Is that put correctly? How are you going to know if the keels come off? That's the first point. Well, the keel bolts may be loose. The keel studs may be coming up and down a little bit. That's possible. But if you've smashed the keel on the bottom of something, um, it may be that the entire area that the keel is attached to is the bit that's kind of come loose. And we've seen this. There was a Bavaria that went down. Was it a Bavaria? In the, in the Mediterranean and a couple of years ago, I have a feeling there was something bigger. Wasn't it an oyster that ripped its keel off? There was cheeky Rafiki. Like, it's not impossible that this can happen. Race boats, it happens. I think, now, who was that? Was that, um, uh, 
Mike Golding, didn't he finish a Vendee Globe in the sister ship of my boat, in fact? Uh, and he, see, on a race boat with like mine, you can put all the ballast in. So like, on my boat, I could ship 10 tons of water and reduce the sail. And although it's not got a keel, it's a very heavy boat now because all this water inside. Not so easy to do if you're on your, your like Hinkley 52 and then something starts to go wrong with the keel. So what, what can we do at that point? The, you know... Unless it's like a black swan event and the keel just falls off. If you roll over something, if you crack the bottom, if you hit some submerged object at sea, maybe we can move away from grounding a little bit now and discuss like hitting something at sea. Um, it's basically the same as grounding. You have to deal with it the same as grounding. Um, hitting a whale can be like this. I've had that experience as well. Um, you need to then look at the possibility that the keel may start to come away from the bottom of the boat. It's extremely unlikely. Boats are incredibly strong. And when you're freaking out going over waves and things banging and crashing and doing whatever, remember just how strong these things are. Anybody that's got a 70s um, fiberglass boat, like it, the thing's built like a tank, right? So they're very, very strong, but you must always think ahead and think about, okay, what happens if? So uh, everything's being looked after downstairs. You've got reduced sail. You are looking up at the mast and you start to, uh, people down below start to say, hey, this is like, this is going wrong. Like something's happening here. What's the options? After uh, Cheeky Rafiki went down, I actually ended up uh, having a very um, interesting conversation with Derek Hatfield, who I was working with, a famous uh, offshore Canadian sailor. We were on his Volvo 60 and uh, we were at sea and we had a discussion between two people. He'd been around the world three times. I've been around the world twice. It's like, okay, you know, Cheeky Rafiki's happened. How do we build that learning into what we are doing and we discussed like what would we do how would we know what's going on obviously if you get a feeling that something is so terribly wrong with the keel that the keel may come off you've got a major event about to happen here now what we should bear in mind is that the vessel the the hull of cheeky rafiki was found the vet it was the hull had enough flotation in it that it um, it could float. Once the keel's off your fiberglass boat, obviously it doesn't apply to ferrous cement or metal. Once the keel's off it, um, it's very unsteady. It's very unstable. But essentially the fiberglass hull, unless you have got a giant hole that opens up in the middle of the boat, um, that fiberglass hull is going to be the best sanctuary you've got. It still will be better than a life raft in many occasions. If you're on deck in the cockpit, it's still easier to see. It's got all your equipment on board. But most of the time, if it's going to crack and it's going to fall away, it's probably going to crack away from the outside of the hull. And then you've got some structure inside the boat that's still going to be there. Obviously, it doesn't apply to all boats, but let's work on a base. It's something like a Bavaria, something like a Beneteau. The keel can come off and the boat is still structurally in one piece. On a race boats like mine, the keel can come off and the boat is still structurally okay. Quite exactly how that would happen, I don't know, but let's just go with it. So inside the boat, we get a feeling that the keel's moving around. Maybe we're gonna change this around a little bit too. Not that there was a, a, a grounding incident or a super serious damage incident, but that just, we have now recognized that the keel is loose through whatever situation. What are your options? If it's starting to look like it's really, really moving around, and it's really, really going to become a problem. What is the logical thing that you have to do next? If the keel is going to fall off, what is going to happen to the balance of the boat? What's going to happen is that that mast, which is like, you know, 50, 60, 70 feet high or 80, 90, 100 feet high on these uh, bigger boats I've got, that mast is going to become a serious problem. My carbon fiber uh, mast on this uh, boat out here, Nova Scotia one is, um, oh, and by the way, I'm the, the boat, uh, all of the stuff we did last year for getting going with this uh, around the world thing, the boat was called the Pride of Nova Scotia, but I've just given up trying to say 
the pride of nova scotia in everything and maybe i realized maybe it's the pride of nova scotia if i get back <laughs> maybe it's just if i get back it's the pride of nova scotia so i'm going to start calling it nova scotia one it's easier and uh we'll do that in the press later on so nova scotia one um that mast weighs 400 kilos, okay? So it's at like a thousand pounds. So there's a lot of weight in the air and we're trying to sail around and do all that stuff. So clearly we're gonna to have to start to get all the sails down as low as we can. But is it gonna to have to go further? What are the options here? If it's a keel-stepped mast, you need to get rid of the mast. Like it's really tricky. If it's a deck-stepped mast, you need to get rid of the mask. Like this is a tricky one. How exactly is this gonna work? Well, we are now in a survival situation. If that keel comes off the boat, we've struck something or there's some kind of structural issue with the boat or some crazy unknown maintenance situation has led to the fact the keel is loose, that's the damage we're talking about, major damage, then um, the rig needs to go away. Now, that kind of sounds crazy, right? It's not that crazy when you run race boats like I do where they have depth ste deck stepped rigs um, with synthetic rigging and they are literally designed if you look at an open 60 you'll see that the boom meets the deck it doesn't meet the mast it's not got a right angle where it meets the mast they'll often dig right into the deck just ahead of the uh, mast and oh so just after the mast bigger pond and um, that is there specifically because if the mast gets wiped off the boat by it rolling or whatever you just cut everything away and then the boom can stand up on its own you jury rig it and then you've got a 30 foot high mast to to keep going with that's how the boat is designed so it's already in my kind of like sphere of thought you know would i ever cut the rig away well i gotta tell you firstly you gotta have something on deck, well, I, you know what? This is going to slide into how to get rid of the mast. This is this is uh, this is actually going to work. <laughs> Watch this. So, uh, damage moving forwards. You've got some kind of damage to the keel, and you're going to have to get rid of the rig. This would also work if you have lost your rig or damaged your rig very seriously because of a knockdown or become some kind of rigging failure. So I'm going to transition from grounding and hitting things at sea with the damage to the keel and the great concern being if that keel comes off that we have to get rid of the mast. But it still works also for if the mast has been irreparably damaged. They normally break above the first spreader if you've got kind of like a knockdown situation um, or that a rigging has failed and the, the mast has, um, has gone from that point. So what do we do to cook the, get rid of the rig? Uh, with you've got synthetic rigging, you get out your knife or scissors, depending, and um, you start cutting things. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. Now, if you've got a rig that's damaged and it's half over the side of the boat, just cut it away as fast as you possibly can. The likelihood is that the rig over the side is acting as a massive hydraulic lock. If it's over the side, it's acting as a hydraulic lock, it'll probably be it might likely be to windward of the boat. So uh, you have to be very, very cautious with the fact that the boat is now gonna uh, have this giant mast smashing against the side of it. So it's, it's gotta leave as soon as possible. You've gotta cut all of the halyards, you've gotta cut all the sheets, you've gotta cut all the rigging, and you've gotta, I would say that the last piece that you cut is the forestay. If you cut the forestay first, whatever, unless it's your forestay broken, of course, but if your forestay is still on and it's shrouds or backstays that have um, gone, then you wanna get into a situation where the boat has the mast alongside it and it's streaming from the bow. You don't wanna cut away the forestay first and then have the mast twist relative to the boat and stuff itself into the back of the boat. If you're in a situation where you've got irreparable damage to the keel and your your great concern, like on Cheeky Rafiki, is that the keel is going to come off. This is, sounds ridiculous, but it you know it's happened. People have died because of this, so it's clearly not ridiculous. If you need to cut it down, 
you should have gear on board to do that. Now, obviously race boats, it's a knife. What is it everywhere else? If you've got um, 7 by 19 uh, or rod rigging, then you're gonna be cutting it with some kind of mechanical, hydraulic, or even one of those um, cordite powered uh, little uh, crops, okay? So um, if we look at uh, bolt crops and those things to begin with, bolt crops are designed to cut through solid like shackles on um, on like padlocks and stuff, right? So if you try to squeeze a wire, seven by 19 wire in um, in a, a set of crops, it doesn't cut them in the way that you think it's gonna do. Go and get some old rigging and, and have a see how that goes, right? It's gonna squeeze it and you may not be quite as strong as you think. If you've got nitronic rigging, the thing to bear in mind is that nitronic rigging was designed to be extremely hard. It is unbelievably strong. It's not just a piece of steel there. It is way, way stronger. I'm trying to think now exactly how strong it is. Stainless steel breaks at 40,000 PSI. Aquamet 22 breaks at 120,000 PSI. And I think nitronic 50, nitronic 60 uh, are in and around there. Nitronic 50, keel bolts would be on big race boats were made from nitronic 50. And then the, the nuts are made from nitronic 60. They were designed to work together. The rigging is, a rod rigging is made from nitronic 50. Oh man, be, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think I'm right. Um, it's either 50 or 60, I'm, now I'm doubting myself. But uh, nitronic 50 is very hard to cut. So don't think you're just gonna do it like a pair of bolt crops that you've chucked in the bottom of some bag somewhere and that's like your how to get rid of the rig. If you've got Dyneema rigging, uh, sorry, Dyneema running rigging, Dyneema is very hard to cut. Um, you should know this already, right? But uh, it ain't just gonna cut through with your little Gerber rescue knife. That's gonna do exactly square root of FA. So you need to have some kind of cutaway knife. Now that can be literally um, one of those box cutter knives. You know, the ones with the very long blades, so like kind of disposable, you can clip the ends off them. They are very good for cutting Dyneema. They're only good for a one You've got to have it in a, in a, in a, in a bag. You've got to have it in a dry bag. Um, and by the end of it, it's all gonna be just you know, throw it throw it in, in the in the rubbish. Um, the uh, the thing is though, you can extend the blade very very long, and then with just a couple of slices, it'll go straight through even like a half inch of Dyneema. So cutty cutty cutty, away go all the sheets. The bye bye the sails. If you don't like, it's a bit like leaving an airplane. Like, do you take your bag with you? Clearly not, right? This is way more serious. Goodbye the sails. Goodbye the everything else. It's all going bye bye. We're all on the insurance. Um, cut, 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 and then try and cut away the rigging. Now, if it's uh, something very strong, you're gonna need a, a cordless grinder or some hydraulic bolt crops or one of these cordite things which which cuts. It's like got a little um, 0.22 uh, cartridge goes in the back, back of it. It's the same kind of cartridge which you use for those hilty ones that fire bolts or I guess kind of nail down into concrete. If you wanna attach things to concrete, it just uses like, explosion basically to fire it in there are ones that you can do that can cut metal like that right ram what are they called ram stops ram oh, i don't know somebody write to me what's those cordite things called i don't use them what i tend to have is a uh, um uh high quality uh, like uh, I, I have a dewalt one i have a dewalt one because it's bright colored because it's yellow and you can see yellow first of any color in low light situations it's gonna be inside the boat and maybe there's a lot of water so a dewalt cordless uh, grinder with a now you can go two ways 
you have to make sure you've got a zip disc on it, right? A cutting disc, not a grinding disc. You can try and grind through Nitronic, uh, Nitronic 50 rigging. Uh, good luck on that one. You need a cut disc and you need a lot of them and you need to know how this thing works. It needs to be charged, regularly checked, spare battery in a dry bag and in your grab bag or your rig rig. Uh, rig release kit or whatever you call it right cutaway kit that's what it's called <laughs> your rig release kit if you need to release the rig um, no if you need to cut the rig away and then zip 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 it goes through if you don't have that stuff a tip that I can give you straight from Derek Hatfield who was dismasted in his um, open 40 uh, in the southern ocean close to Cape Horn um, he said uh, a lot of what he when he got rid of the rig on his boat he just knocked the pins out the pins that actually hold the uh, bottle screws to the chains uh, uh, chain plates he just knocked those pins out so a punch and a hammer is important but remember if you punch 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 and the punch itself goes into the hole that you're trying to knock the pin out the punch can become the next thing that's stuck in the hole so just you know you need a very thin punch so it can knock a big pin out and then you can get it out before the whole lot closes up on it so cut the rig away so if you're in a situation where you think the keel's going to go because you've hit something, um, it may be necessary to cut the rig away. If it's deck stepped, it's gonna be a lot easier. How would you do it? This is how I would do it, but I'm not saying that anybody else should do it. If I was trying to get the rig off my boat in the event that I thought the keel was gonna fall off, I would leave, um, I would probably leave the sails up. I would uh, cut away the leeward rigging whilst reaching. And then uh, I would tack the boat from down below with the autopilot, at which point it will tack, the rig will go over the side of the boat, and then I'd go on deck with everything ready to go. And remember, you're gonna need like uh, some kind of protective things for your hands. You're gonna need to be able to clip onto the boat. There's gonna be a lot of heavy stuff with huge amounts of forces on it. And you need to be ready, like you're gonna go here, you're gonna go there, you're gonna there. We're gonna cut everything off the back of it, everything off the middle of it. And if you're lucky, you can have it cut away from the boat in 10 or 15 minutes before it does more. And then, if the keel comes off, you are just in a boat. You can have like big water jugs down in the bottom of the boat. You get all the heavy stuff you've got on the boat, the anchors, the batteries, that kind of stuff. You put it right in the center of the boat as much as you can, and then you may survive. <laughs> that sounds awful, and then you may survive. When I worked for Beneteau, we used to get the boats off the ships, and they just had a big wooden board that was over the um, where the keel connects. The keel would be offloaded and put on a truck. The mast would be put on the deck of the boat, and then the boat would we would drive the boats round to the place where we put them together, the commissioning yard. Um, we'd drive them like 10, 10 miles, is that right? Yeah, 10 miles, I guess. It was quite a long way um, with just uh, sycophlexed um, wooden board in where the keel bolts go and it was sort of sealed up in there. So the boat will stay upright the way you want it to be if the mast is off it, should the keel fall off. So there you go. That might be useful, I hope. But I am not in any way endorsing a particular uh, course of action. I am asking you to think about what if in your situation and recognize that... Um, and recognize, let's make it a bit more real world, and recognize that if the rig was off Cheeky Rafiki, it wouldn't have rolled over and those poor young men would be still alive. So let's learn from uh, tragedy. So let's uh, move on here. So now let's, yeah, so we talked about rig cutaway. So damage to the rigging, damage which leads to the mast being dropped. Um, we are very aware of the forces which are on it. We try and get rid of it as quickly as we can so it doesn't damage the boat. Um, and then we can talk about a jury rig. So in the event that the mast has gone over the side of the boat and we need to jury rig, uh, we want to be looking at our boom if we can. If you're cutting the, 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 the boom and the rigging and everything away from the boat, see if you can save the, uh, the boom. If you can, super useful. 
If you can't, see if the if the masters come down above the first spreaders, which they often do, then you need to get somebody up there to um, cut away what's up there and the rig is going to leave the boat, but leave that first section with the first spreaders. That is your best chance of making some kind of usable uh, jury rig. So I guess the question there is, how do you get somebody up the mast when the um, now all your halyards have gone, right? So every time you get into a situation where we are outside of the normal, we have to be even more careful with safety. The biggest thing which comes through on those Marine Accident Investigation Bureau reports is the fact that um, oftentimes things go wrong when people do something new in a novel situation. So you're in a new novel situation, something's happening that you're unexpected, you decide to engage in some course of action which you've never done before. In the military, they say you train hard and fight easy and that they do constant training and constant um, evolutions so that they are covered for lots of different things. Yes, it's about muscle memory. Yes, it's about quick reactions and, and good management of the situation, but it's also to make sure that you're not moving into a, a novel course of action because more often than not, it tends to go wrong. So how would you get somebody up the mast to attach things at the top of it when most of it's rigging gone? Now, if you've got a baby stay, it's probably attached to the first spreaders, right? And if you've got, uh, well, if you've got a mast, then you've probably got a Marconi rig. Different if you've got a gaff rig. We've got a whole other set of situations. But let's talk about a Marconi rig. You've still got your V1s, your vertical rigging that goes up to your first spreader. And then you've got your D1s, the diagonal rigging that comes from the chain plates and meets the tangs just under the first spreader. Unless you have something called discontinuous rigging, which is where the rigging is made of separate sections. It goes from the deck to the first spreader and then a separate piece goes from spreader one to spreader two and a separate piece goes from spreader two to spreader three. Unless you have that kind of discontinuous rigging, what you're looking at when the mast um, uh, breaks above the first spreader is that the uh, shrouds are only passing through the end of the spreader. They are not in any way structural. It's not doing anything anymore, okay? So you have to be very cautious about, like, we're going to put somebody up this this now broken stick at this point still with the mast hanging off it. How secure is this stick? Well, if it's keel-stepped, You've got, um, it's attached to the keel down below and it should be bolted or secured or tied down to whatever the mast step is. It should be like that anyway. It's then attached at the partners where it comes through the coach house roof. That will give you probably enough stability to deal with it, want to deal with that little stick and somebody up it in the event that the rest of the rig is cut away. When the rest of the rig is still attached to it and sails are in the water and you're potentially still moving and there's waves moving around, that stick can get dragged out of the boat by the force that are on it. So we've got to cut as much stuff away as we can and then we have to start to analyze whether this situation is safe for someone to go up there. If you make a judgment that it is safe, there's not too much wave movement, there's not too much um, action uh, in the boat, then you can potentially start to think about throwing things over the spreaders and then sliding them along so they're at the spreader roots and then doing the same on the other side and then double belaying somebody and you can use your turning blocks at the bottom of the mast, put a harness on and then put a rope around the mast so that they are uh, in the event that they, you can actually wrap it all the way around the mast and back to yourself. So it's got like a full turn. And then as you pull them up on this crazy situation you've got going on, they can lift that loop up, lift the loop up. And if the 
spreaders break or bend and your belay high point is lost, they will still be like wrapped around the rig and they should basically like slowly descend back down on this thing, okay? The key is that we have to be very, very cautious not to push people into dangerous situations, um, you know, when we're already in an emergency. So you, if the rig is just uncontrollably by the side of the boat and you've got heavy action, you may have to cut the mast off at the deck level. So again, your, um, your grinder and everything, it's like felling a tree. The direction that it's pulling towards, you cut that side first. If it's pulling to port, you do a cut along the port side and you do that by reaching out and keeping the whole lot well away from yourself. You then go round to the opposite side and you start cutting down that and it will start to peel away from you, right? And you just do your damn best and keep your hands out the way of whatever's going on. And oftentimes what you can do with that is um, get the people that are around you and, and you know are your safety system, either have a rope attached to your harness or have someone literally hold on the back of your harness. And their job is to pull you out the way if the mast starts to go. Because if it starts to go, there's all sorts of forces in play here and you don't want to have it that you freak, freeze for a second, and then something catches you, hurts you on the way down. So they can pull you out of danger. But if you cut it on the side, which has got force on it, you should be able to reach in, zip disc, just zoop, zoop, cut through there, even just perforate it, and then come around to the other side and cut it. And then when it peels over and starts to leave the boat, it won't be left with like a hinge of aluminum, which is still attaching it to the boat. You've already cut that through. But do not underestimate how thick-walled the um, the mast is. It, uh, it It's quite the thing. You need a lot of extra discs. Like put 10, 12, 15 discs in your bag and bear in mind that um, zip discs crack if you, um, if you smash them in the wrong angle. So let's not get too bogged down with this. But um, if the keel gets irretrievably damaged, you need to think about taking the rig off the boat at sea. You should do that from by uh, losing the rig when you are not on deck so that there's no way you can get hit with anything. You just change the autopilot from down below or you get the a broom and push the tiller or whatever it is you need to do, have a plan for you. The rig goes over, you jump out on deck, clip on, be safe, life jackets on, all ready to go and get rid of it and get rid of all the rope, okay? We have to be very cautious that there's no rope around the propeller because the propeller is going to become your best friend. Whatever diesel you've got left on board is going to be part of your solution going forward. So making sure rope is free, getting that mast away from the boat as soon as possible, very, very important. If you can keep the first section of the mast up, then you need to get somebody up there. And then we need to start making a new set of backstays and forestays for this new stunted rig, which could just literally be bowlins dropped over the broken section of mast above the spreaders you've cut it away um, you've when you've gone up there with your zip disc you've cut the thing away and then you just start tying it off as much as you can and then things like your storm jib um, can be uh, stretched out as a, like a trisel uh, or if you've got like a number four jib that can be your trisel and your normal storm jib will go up your baby stay whatever's your situation you need to know what you're going to do okay all right, so we have talked about hitting things. We talked about mayday. We talked about losing the keel. We have talked about bilge pumps. We've talked about cutting away the mast. What else can happen on a boat? Well, fire. Let's talk about that. Okay, so another thing which would definitely precipitate having a mayday would be fire on the vessel. Fire is a big problem because we're in a very small space and that space is made of a material that wants to burn. If you're on a steel boat, then uh, it's likely that you have 
uh, insulation. If it's intumescent, then it'll be something which creates like a carbon foam on it when it starts to burn and that carbon foam actually resists uh, the, the foam heating up any further or some sauce. If it's not, it's gonna burn like bilio, okay? It probably depends on the end of the uh, age of the boat. If um, you're in a fiberglass boat, you're in something that burns, <laughs> okay? This is no two ways about it. They burn and when they burn good, they burn right down to the waterline. So fire is a big issue. First things first is that we need to think about like the attitude to fire. Where's fire likely to happen? I don't think many people have got gasoline engines in their boats anymore. It does happen. Those atomic four engines are literally everywhere. And I'm sure anybody that's got one is probably very happy with it and, and, and knows how it works and is making a conscious decision for it to be there. But it does come with a set of other issues and those other issues relate to the fact that it's running gasoline and gasoline can um, start to uh, vaporize at quite a low temperature. It va it'll vaporize quite happily at uh, normal 21 degrees, 72 degrees um, uh, uh, room temperature. And so you've now got uh, gasoline in the air. Um, you only need a 14 to one ratio of, uh, of air to uh, fuel. Actually more fuel in the air is actually less likely to light. Um, less fuel in the air, a small amount can light and then you're gonna get some kind of explosion or you're gonna get some kind of fire. Uh, if you've got diesel engines, obviously it's a lot less likely that's going to happen, but there's still uh, places that fire can break out. Things like alternators can, can cause fire. Um, shorts in the batteries, like something drops onto the battery, can cause battery explosions and fire. Um, you, things can get just way too hot. You've got your, you know, some kind of piece of clothing sitting on top of the engine. You forget about it. The engine gets hot. It's on the exhaust. Whatever. Fire starts. Fire is something which... Um, we can do something about in a in a meaningful way if you've been properly trained and if you've thought about it first. The reality is that most times when fire breaks out, somebody skillful could step forward and solve it. And um, if you're not skillful, you're on the back foot paddling away from it, trying to survive. Um, that's not the best place to be at. I was very lucky. I did my last set of STCW. That's the safety training for um, crew and watch keepers, the kind of commercial thing. If you've not got that, if you don't work in the commercial field, I strongly recommend it. It used to be STCW 95, wasn't it? And now it's STCW 10 because it was updated in 2010. So STCW 10 covers the use of lifeboats, getting in and out of them, going in a pool, actually using life. I keep saying lifeboats, life rafts, life rafts, getting in and out of them, life jackets. It also has a personal safety and social responsibility thing, which is all about the Marine Pollution Act and interacting with other crew members. And then it has the kind of guts of thing, which is the first aid one and the fire training. And I say I did mine in South Africa and I was very, very lucky that I did it um, with a fire brigade. It was the fire brigade that did the testing for this particular sort of STCW I was doing. I've heard tell of people getting their STCW, people kind of like, um, proudly telling me like how little they had to do to get this qualification. It's like you are coming at this from the wrong angle. We did it uh, as the fire brigade would do it. And it was um, a series of containers, 40 foot containers, all kind of connected together in a bit of a maze. But firstly, we went in there and there was like a dummy we had to drag out. We had breathing apparatus on. It was very, very thick, very difficult to find people in those situations. If you've ever done diving underwater, actually, I was just out literally today diving on moorings and this is what brings it to mind. When you get down, you start kicking up the silt, kicking up the mud and you can't see anything. That's how much you can see when you've got breathing gear on and you're looking for a body in a, in a known space right so you have to be very very um good with you know feeling your way around and working out where you are 
Um, but then later on, once they've done that, we do firefighting outside, which was like a, an oil fire. They had um, something inside of a size of a waste paper basket with uh, oily rags in it. And they just put like a, I think it was a lit, lit splint or something into it. And that basket was next to a, a bigger basket. And that basket was next to like a vat of, uh, of oil. And um, it spread from that little waste basket up onto that big vat of oil so fast so crazy fast and you start to realize that everything is off gassing and is kind of like you know our idea of like this is liquid this is solid this is gas is not 100 percent right a lot of things are in a sort of transitional stage that, that we're aware of it um and certainly once things start to get hot that transformative stage is a, a, a lot bigger issue things can start to off gas furniture can start to off gas um the, the the wood is warming up and getting to that point where it'll catch if it goes. The oil obviously is a, an issue. Um, doing the training with the fire brigade like that, I learned something very important. I learned firstly that uh, a small fire extinguisher used correctly can put out quite a big fire when it's operated by someone who knows what they're doing. Um, I learned that if you don't know what you're doing, you can discharge this same fire extinguisher into the same size fire and it still keeps going because you don't really know what's going on. We have an idea like a fire, like... You know, what have you seen like on films and stuff, right? And people run in and they do the, the all that stuff comes out at the end of the fire extinguisher, like gas or powder or whatever it is that comes out at the end. And then it, the fire's out and it's all groovy Tuesday. And the reality is, of course, that a lot of like CO2 extinguishers and powder fire extinguishers, the material itself has still got a lot of heat in it. And there's still air around it. So if there's any source of ignition, it just goes again. All those fumes, all those um, different materials which are in this transitional state are still off-gassing and will just go again. So go and do training go and learn how to be safe you're on this tiny scrap of fiberglass or metal or carbon fiber whatever it is in the middle of nowhere it's down to you you need to know how to deal with this stuff um doing the stcw also of course brings you to a point where you're like oh i've, I've stepped up here i've done a qualification it's normally about a thousand us um and if you're if you're lucky like you come and do it here in nova scotia with us it's um the the merchant naval training pool here there's like a big jump into the water and it's cold water and you've got these you know once only suits on life jackets like it's real or if you're in the uk if you're in the uk you can go to the um rnli uh, the royal national lifeboat institute's training facility in pool they do it there and they have uh, a training pool there which has like waves and strobe lights and wind and it like that is like being at sea and uh, it's just not sensible to not train hard like you need to know what's coming else you're just gonna be petrified when it happens right that's not groovy you're not gonna be you're not gonna be any use to those around you so um fire what do we do first thing is um on my uh watch uh, orders what's those things called the standing orders standing orders are on the nav station and, and yeah again i kind of run commercial a lot of the time but it, you can still do it on your boat you can teach your kids this stuff they can they can check the boat they can check the bilges they can you know have a look in the engine room they can they, they can do stuff that's useful it's useful to you and it's useful to them and uplift their their awareness but i always say to people you know when you're doing it and it's written in the standing orders it should smell like this it should smell normal right it should smell like a boat it shouldn't smell like it's hot it shouldn't smell oily it shouldn't smell gasoline it shouldn't smell gassy it shouldn't smell electrical it shouldn't smell it shouldn't smell anything other than the way it smells like when you walk on board and everything's cool right uh it should sound the way 
it's meant to sound like when you're sailing along you've got obviously the water going under the hull and you've got spray on deck and it's booming and banging if it's going upwind or it's creaking and groaning and doing whatever it's going downwind but it shouldn't sound like anything else if things are pipping or things are bubbling or things are hissing or things are creaking in an unusual way and you, you need to get into that. You need to come like a boat whisperer. You need to be listening to things, using all your senses all the time. Even like you start to, oh, what's that? What's that taste in my mouth? You know, maybe there's something in the air. Maybe you've already been exposed to the smell of some kind of chemical for a while and it's actually knocked out your nose. You know, those guys that go and work in the uh, sewers, they're exposed to, is it hydrogen sulfur or sulfur? Hy- no, hydrogen sulfide, isn't it? The, 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 the gas which is down in the sewers. After a while, it numbs your sense of smell. you <laughs> That's the first thing it does. It's going to knock you out in the end because it's going to hit your brain. But the first thing it does is knock out your nose. If you're in an environment where you've got a super oily engine room and that's kind of how you roll and like there's crap every which way all over the boat. And you don't know what's, you know, how can you tell if like something's starting if, if it's always like tricky to, to, to discern what the smells in your environment anyway? How can you tell if the gasoline leaks got worse if the gasoline's always leaking how can you tell if the diesel leaks got worse if there's always a bit of a rainbow puddle in the bottom of the bilges right so you need to kind of like use your senses here if you're in a apartment building or if you're in your house and uh, and a fire breaks out um certainly like when i was at university or i've been a shoreside establishment um doing training what have you oftentimes the chit chat is raise the alarm and then fight the fire Okay, Uh, and there's a lot of sense in that because you're bringing people in on a boat, unless you have some particular circumstance that you're dealing with, it is better that you fight the fire whilst attempting to raise the alarm. Okay, don't go running three decks up to tell people that, um, hey, there's a fire down here. And then everybody, oh, my goodness, what's going on? Yeah, there's a fire. Really? Is there a fire? Yeah, there's a fire. And then you all go piling back down because now three minutes has gone past. And that moment where it's just in the waste paper basket or it's just something, you know, a little couple of inches of, of fire showing down the side of the engine that moment's passed it's on its way it's hot it's if it's on fire it's probably already been going for a little while and things may be in that transitional gassing state where it'll go right you do have to be a little bit cautious when you're moving into compartments um, where fire has been reported or you think there is one because as you enter that compartment even if it's the forward cabin or taking the cover off the side of your engine bay that may be the act that um that that causes the air to go in and really flames it up that flash over moment where you suddenly fire brigades are always very interested when they come to a house to understand like how long has this been going has there been a big explosion you know what what's actually happening here because this thing of backdraft or flash over moments where um the the fire suddenly the the uh, the furniture's burning there's all sorts of gases inside the house and suddenly those gases boof go what they don't want to do obviously is be putting people into that space when it flashes over it's better that they're there early or they're there fighting it from the outside or that it's already flashed over but one of those and not people going in equally for you if you see it and you're right there grab the fire extinguisher grab the hose do whatever it is that you need to do and um oh i think at that point we should say that we need to discuss uh, types of fire okay so um there's a couple of different fires that can occur on a boat chemical fires um which would be like oil fires diesel fires gasoline fire um maybe things from the toolbox or or stored fluids from the engine room or something like that uh, something that somebody's brought on board um there are electrical fires uh which obviously your electrical cabinets got going um or there are carbonaceous fires. Carbonation fires would be like wood, paper, like stuff that burns, you know, like the normal stuff that burns. Um, 
onboard boat these days, um, all of the fire extinguishers should be powder. Okay, um, it's a, the coloring of things is a little bit different in different places in the UK. Certainly when I was last there, so it might be out of date, the fire extinguishers are mostly red. In North America now, they're mostly white, but they are powder fire extinguishers. You don't want to have any circumstance where you can possibly put water onto a electrical fire and electrocute yourself. You Equally, you don't want to have a situation where you're putting water onto a chemical fire like a fat fire in a house, which we all know, of course, is if you put it on, it will boil, it will... The oil will go on top of the water because oil floats on water. It will boil the water underneath it and then it will explode in your face, right? So uh, powder goes onto them. It's great. It's no problem at all. It makes a massive mess, but that's your new reality. You have to be very careful about your breathing and what you're going to um, inhale of that stuff. But it is all still very hot afterwards and you need to have like a plan B. As you're discharging the fire extinguisher and yelling for help and doing all the things you're doing, hopefully it's not too big a boat and they can hear you, um, you then need to um, be thinking about what's the plan B here. Now, engine rooms, of course, should have uh, fuel cutoffs, whatever whatever fuel it's running. There should be a cutoff which is available from outside of the engine bay and there should be a port uh, somewhere you can uh, probably unscrew a cap or something and you can put the nozzle of the fire extinguisher in and then discharge it completely into the engine bay and then and then still be ready for what comes next and still be very hot in there. All of that powder does is, you know, remove the oxygen from the fire from that moment and extinguishes it. It will come back if there's an opportunity for it to keep coming back. There should be battery cutoffs that you can get to. Um, obviously, if it's gas, it's a very serious situation. If it just starts to get going right there on the stove, there's maybe a moment that you can do something about it. But uh, that solenoid valve's got to close. You've got to go to the cockpit and close the valve in the uh, on the... Um, LPG, and if you fear that it's getting out of control, get the LPT, LPG tanks and throw them over the side of the boat. If you, on the back of the naval ship that I worked on, HMS Charger, um, all the fuel for the dinghy was in racks on the back of the boat. In the event of a fire, you close all screen doors and hatches, close the vents from the engine room that allow air into the engine room, discharge the halon system into the engine room, and pull the thing which chucks all of the gasoline for the outboard off the back of the ship. Okay, so you've got to start thinking like that. I think I think my experience of, of this is I'm, I'm very excited to be working with uh, veterans, veteran first responders and military veterans uh, with our new plan here with the Ocean Globe Race and, uh, and working with veterans for that. People that have got that background, the way that they've been trained is that they're kind of used to emergencies. They're used to things ramping up suddenly. If you're on Civvy Street and you've just not had that in your life, um, it's there's often like a number of beats are lost while you realize like wow this is this is happening you know and then there's a, like this weird kind of state where the the vessel will sink without the fire without the um the the flares being fired because people are like well you know they're for an emergency <laughs> it's like this is an emergency like get you need to have like kind of tripping points in your head where you know, if there's a fire on this boat, it's very serious. If someone goes in the water, it's very serious. If we strike the bottom, it's very serious. If something, if water starts coming, it's very, and you just immediately know this is very serious. And you start moving in that way. There was a situation, um, I read a book called 500 Days Around the World, a guy taking a boat called Arcroc Australis, I believe. And it was the smallest boat, I think it ever, but I think it was the smallest boat at its time to circumnavigate it's going back a bit now i can't remember the guy's name maybe you help me with that but i believe the boat was 12 or 15 feet long something like that very very small and i remember him saying about um 
he had Trangiers on board, the little um, Swedish cooking system with those little um, pots. They're kind of like a, is it like a brass pot or something? You put methylated spirits in, there's the holes around the top, you light it and it gets going with a bit of a flame. Well, he had a couple of um, burners, but this time he it had gone out because it was, you know, it ran out of fuel and he pulled it out and not thinking he poured the methylated spirits into it um, to, to, to refill it. But there was so much heat left in the burner that the thing caught light and and rolled up the front of him and, and like burnt off his beard and now this boat's only like 12 or 15 look, foot long or whatever it is it's in the middle of nowhere um and he dove out the back of the uh, uh cabin cleared the um the cockpit because it's only a very small boat of course and went into the ocean and then i remember reading it it must have been 20 years ago i read it and um he said as he as he hit the water he immediately realized i've just jumped off the boat <laughs> And thank God it wasn't moving very fast. I don't know what the top speed of a 12-foot boat would be. Um, it's the non-planing. I remember seeing pictures of it. It's like uh, it, like full keel, metal. It was a whole thing, right? Um, but thank God he turned and then had like this express moment and was able to get to the back of the boat and uh, and get himself back on the boat. And he burnt the cabin out, made a right mess of everything. But um, he survived it. Gas on boats is, a, is, a, is an issue. We, you know, I'm not going to dissuade anybody from having lpg i will say this there's no lpg on any of the boats i've got um you know take that as you will um we, we use alcohol the arigo stove which i mentioned in c is for cooking is very slow but if you use a sealed kettle with a, a lid and a, and, a, and a spout that's kind of uh, got a little closure on it it does a good job um and the great thing is that a fire with alcohol can be put out with water it's an there's plenty of water on a boat, right? You could have a whole galley on fire and you just direct your hoses if you've got that or your buckets if you've got those, direct it to it. Now, if it gets out of control, you've got a problem. You've got a serious problem and you're going to have to start making a plan. Obviously, you need to get your life raft, your grab bags or your kit, people's uh, you know VHFs, all that stuff should all be in a place ready to go anyway. Um, what you can do if there's a lot of smoke but it's basically out, you're going to need to know which way your boat sits to the wind. Um, always good to know that anyway for parking maneuvers, for, for, for your own safety. If the sails come down, what angle is this boat going to be at? Um, sailing along with the boat on fire is is pretty pretty kind of um, water world. Uh, I would maybe <laughs> err on the side of stopping sailing at this point um, and just get as physically far away from everything as you can. You know, what you could do is launch the life raft. It's got a 30 foot, is it 30 foot or 30 meters? I should know this. I think it's 30 meters, 100 foot, isn't it, of, of, uh, of um, painter on it. If it's on fire, put that life raft in the water. Get all the kit into it as fast as you can. Tie it tightly on the back of the boat. If this thing's out of control, and now you're going to have to try and be downwind of it as well. So think about where everything's going to be in this because you do not want to be like downwind getting choked by everything. But, you know, it's probably not going to be that bad. You'll be very low. And even if it's big uh, chemical um, fire, it's going to be up above you. But you cannot be anywhere near if there's uh, if that LPG tank blows up. That's a blevy. That's a that's a, a pressurized vessel, which is an explosion is occurring inside the pressurized vessel. That is a very serious explosion. Um, LPG on fire is bad. Um, LPG tanks on fire is very bad. And obviously, um, things like if you've got diving tanks and they have their aluminum tanks, aluminum will melt at quite low temperatures. It certainly will not come 
uh, pressure bearing. It will not hold 3000 PSI. Uh, if it starts to get way too hot, if you've got three dive tanks lined up somewhere, um, make sure you're not stood above them wondering, hey, I wonder what's going to happen next. Because when they go, that release of air won't explode in the same way, but it's going to be a sudden release of pressure and you cannot be near it. You're, you're, you're just a big meat sack, right? You'll get blown to pieces. So you've got to be out of the way. Um, the the, the thing is here that like, can you stay tethered to the boat? Maybe you get a load of rope and make the tether longer, longer, longer. If it burns itself off the boat, well, I'm probably not going back to the boat anyway, right? But um, you, you want to be as far away as possible. And I think there's a, a good point to be made for um, uh, watching for smoke inhalation. In a house, it's bad. Staying low is very important. Um, on a boat, obviously, everything's plastic. And I don't think they're really taking that much notice to make sure that the covers on your 1970 uh, westerly centaur are actually made of something which uh, is is not going to kill you if it starts to um, get into your lungs. So, yeah, be very, very cautious with that. The thing always with any of this is to play what if, is to sit down with the people who are on the boat and just you know, have a beer, like smoke a cigarette, chat, discuss and discuss what happens if it goes wrong. Because you're probably very smart and you know your boat really, really well. And um, and you've got your phone, you can get online and look at stuff and just say like, OK, what if the mast breaks? What if the keel comes off? What if we ground? What if, you know, all these things just play what if with them? So where else we got collision? OK. Let's keep moving along here. We're at uh, an hour and 35. We're aiming for 25 minutes in this. And I still have to do Maydays. Um, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to... I said uh, about um, Man Overboard, we will do that. I'm going to do that as a separate whole thing. I don't think I'm even going to wait until like M is for Man Overboard. It's a bit silly anyway because it should be under P for Person Overboard, right? But <laughs> the um, the uh, I'll maybe just do that as a whole thing. I'll maybe do it quite soon because it's very, very important to understand how that can go down. But... Um, yeah, it's uh, so if we're going to meet, we're going to say that uh, grave and imminent danger is somebody in the water, fire, grounding, collision. That's your, your main things. You know, piracy as well, but that's not damage. So collision. Collisions can occur. Um, they can occur in port where, you know, bits of other boats get stuck in your boat. They can occur at sea where you drive over things. Everybody is permanently petrified about containers and the fact that uh, there's, there's all these containers driving around all the time. I've got to say, I've never, ever seen a... Now, I'm going to jinx myself now, aren't I? I've never seen a container at sea. I have never met anybody who's hit a container. I've met lots of people that hit things at sea, but I've never hit any... I've never heard of anybody hitting a container. Um, and we should think a little bit about like how serious that would be. It is likely that if a container goes into the ocean, whatever's stored inside it is going to slide to one end, one end or the other. If it's pallets and containers of, of whatever it is, um, they're going to have a mechanical kind of like crunch that they can do. But most containers are filled in such a way that what's inside isn't going to move that much unless it is modified by the addition of water, in which case its shape's going to change completely. So if you've got bags of rice in it or if you've got cuddly toys or something, I don't know, it can change, at which point the orientation of the container is not going to be like level with the surface of the water. It's probably going to kick down. The water's going to start flowing into it because these things have vents on the side. We've had some atrocious situations with people being moved in containers. So they all have vents on them now. And that vent is there also to allow water into it. The seals on the doors are absolute, but that vent is there to allow water to get into it. So a container which is in the ocean on the whole, unless what's inside of it is very um, uh, buoyant, 
they will sink relatively quickly. And the steelwork in a container is many tons. I haven't got the numbers right in front of me right now. I can't even think. But on a 20, let me get this right. On a 26 ton, 20 foot, how much do 20 foot containers weigh? Is it five ton or is that a 40 foot? Somebody, somebody write and tell me. I could, I could look it up quickly, but I'm trying to do this all from the hip. But let's say a, a 40 foot container is five ton. Although I have a feeling that's a 20 ton, but 20 foot. But they're very, very heavy. So once water goes inside them, you know, it will get lower very quickly. And then hopefully it should start driving the air out and it goes beneath the waves. But clearly a container could be out there, maybe. You know what's much more likely? A tree. I have known three boats seriously damaged by trees. You have a big flood, you have a big tsunami or, or, or a typhoon or something, go through an area like the Philippines was uh, classic for this when we were working in Hong Kong. You'd have a massive weather system go over the Philippines. All of the trees get washed down the rivers, uh, you know, that are uprooted and are maybe being moved down the rivers anyway as part of logging. They get flushed out to sea. And now you've got something which has got like branches and roots on it. You've got a tree that was 40 foot high, which is getting more and more bogged by um, mussels and by sea squirts and by anything else that will grow on it. It's getting lower and lower, but it's got like big limbs that can do a lot of damage to your boat. When I was in... Um, uh, Challenger got damaged. We were doing the Block Island race a couple of years back and we drove at 13 knots over a, a partly submerged telegraph pole. There'd been massive weather systems going through the through Connecticut and Massachusetts and um, this telegraph pole had got washed down. We didn't see it, but the boat behind us hit it as well and they did see it and it, it was in the same area. It was within like half an hour. It's probably the same thing. But um, we took big impact on the bow, which took a chunk out of the sacrificial bow on that boat. She's made of Kevlar and the first three feet are made of foam and Kevlar. Um, it rattled down underneath the keel. It didn't do any damage to the keel, although it was a moment where we discovered that there was damage to the keel from actually an electrolytic um, reaction which had occurred when the boat had been stored in the Caribbean. And um, she hadn't been hauled out since the Caribbean. And it was when we hauled her out to check for this damage, we discovered this crevice rust. And that's why we replaced the, the keel on Challenger a couple of years ago. But the keel didn't stand any damage because the boat just kind of it hit it and then rolled up on top of it because it's a race boat. If you've got a full keel, you're going to take a, a, a bigger impact, but it is going to ride up. The boat's going to ride up onto it. And at the end of the day, you know, most boats that are tootling around, unless it's something special, you probably do between eight and 10 knots. Yeah. Okay. If, <laughs> that might be a little bit hopeful for some boats. I understand that. But let's say it's something quick. You're having a good day and you drive over something that you hit it at 10 knots. What's that? There's uh, 1,852 meters in a, in a, in a sea mile. So give or take it's two kilometers uh, for every nautical mile, right? So you're doing 10 knots, you're doing 20 kilometers now. So you're not doing very high speed, but you're hitting it in something that weighs a lot. I wouldn't want to get hit by a truck that's, you know, 20 ton a truck uh, and it's doing 20 kilometers an hour. That is going to hurt, right? Um, but the lighter the boat is, the less likely it is to damage itself. That inertia can be lost in the impact um, by the boat slowing down and pushing the thing ahead of it. Um, if you've got a bigger boat or if you're going fast, this is much more of an issue. Um, I would say this, we are talking about damage, but there's a, 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 a available moment here for me to have a cup, another swig of it. I've now had two mouthfuls of this tea. Um, how worried should you be about hitting stuff? Um, you have to be a little bit fatalistic. And by that, I mean, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, right? If you're on a ship at sea and 
like, okay, I work on a 150 foot tall ship and we definitely have a watch keeper on the foredeck, forward of the forward mast. And that person is um, looking out. They're looking out into the wide blue yonder or the wide black yonder if it's nighttime. And they are checking for like vessels and lights and land and all that kind of stuff. But they are not looking in the water for something. So even if you've got a watch person forward of the mast out of all of the ambient light, looking around, checking out what's going on, that person is extremely unlikely to be able to help you not hit something in the water. So then how useful is a person forward? Well, you've got to have a life jacket on, you've got to be clipped on, because if we do hit anything, you're probably going like onto your face if it's good, uh, hurting yourself if it's not good, or over the bows if you're right at the front of the boat. I would not be that worried about hitting stuff at night, because you have charts, common sense, uh, radar, uh, AIS. Um, the things that are left for you to hit are kind of beyond your ability to control. You should be proceeding at a safe speed for the conditions. If it's foggy, you're going to need to slow down. We're not going to get into all that now, but that's a, a discussion for another day. But the, the things that you are likely to be able to control are easy for you to recognize and the things that are outside of your control you just got to kind of let them go i hear this all the time like containers 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 some containers fall off ships but they're not all just kind of balanced there they're in all those lugs on the corners of the containers are all interconnected when that lots together it's not like well it's maybe like lego if you do a really good job of tessellating all the lego together and it's like one cohesive mass that's kind of what containers are like on ships. They're not just all kind of piled up and they all fall off and when it goes wrong, it wouldn't be in the best interest of the ships, right? And they are designed to, uh, to sink slowly over time. It might take a week, but they are. And the other thing is, you know, if a ship was going to lose something, it's probably likely to be a security, maybe for your area. And if a container has drifted out of a shipping lane, it's got that long to drive out of a shipping line and get to where you are, then it's probably got so much weed on it and so much barnacles on it, it's going to be very low in the water. Unless you strike a corner of it, um, you're probably just going to ride up on it. So, I, you know, we can't go too much further down here, but I would say do everything you can. Learn to do the things that you can do well and then kind of don't worry about the rest of it it's, it's some things you kind of kind of let go you know um okay so we are talking about <laughs> let's try and drive myself back to where we were at collision so we have collided with something let's not get into it too much uh it could be another vessel in which is a whole rules of the road thing first thing we need to do is sound the ship okay uh I say it at the end of every one of these, I hope you're safe and sound. The sound being that the vessel is structurally strong, it's seaworthy, and it's able to do what it says on the packet, be a boat, all right? You have to sound the ship. You've got to go and check on deck and try and look over the sides. You've got to go inside and look around with a torch. You've got to be checking for water. You've got to be checking for hydraulic leaks. If you have hydraulic systems for oil leaks, if the engine has been seriously shaken or something, something might have broken on the engine, you've got to check for people injured inside the boat remember when you collide with something everything stops real quickly the the great worry for me really in the event of a collision at sea in the boats i've got is that somebody falls and that we then have both the collision issue and we have the injury that we're dealing with that you, you know it's kind of like the the germans in the second world war like you know don't get split on two different fronts it's not going to work you've got to keep all your eggs in 
that one issue you're dealing with. Don't allow it to be two different things. It's another reason why we always say one hand for the ship and one hand for yourself, because if something untoward happens and you boat suddenly stops, you're swinging away from the companionway, but you still got your hand on it and you swing back in. And it was a big story and that's it, but you weren't actually hurt, right? So we check the people, everyone's safe. We sound the ship is the ship now if it's not and there's water coming in we're kind of doubling back round to where we were early about bilge pumps and chocking things and plugging things and fathering things the one thing i want to bring here now is that if it gets real bad like you've got a big hole inside the boat i haven't seen it yet i need to watch this robert redford film a couple of people wrote to me and said i should watch that um you know can you make a blanket patch to go over if it's really big you need to if you've got, let's say we've got a big hole in the bow or something, um, we're going to need to immediately reduce sail and try and heave the boat to and stop water from coming in as much as possible. At least tack so it's out, out of the water as much as you can so you're not shipping water, okay? Had the Titanic stopped and stayed stopped and not actually run its engines for another, what was it, 11, 12 minutes until it finally came to a stop, a lot less water would have come in the front of it. You just got to stop as quickly as you can. What you can do is get something like your, I wouldn't say your storm saw because your storm saw might be useful for like what comes next, but get like your um, number four jib or something like that. And you can tie a rope onto it and tie ropes onto the, the head and the foot and the clue. And then you can put it over the bow and to the best of your abilities, try and drag it to a position where it's over and round that hole. And then the pressure from outside will push the um, push that blanket patch, push that material into the hole and give you some kind of chance to stop the water coming in. If this is going to be a long-term situation where you're actually trying to deal with saving the boat from a, a, an extreme collision at sea a long way offshore, you're going to have to be starting like fashion patches and, and that's going to require wood, it's going to require screws, bolts, it's going to require all sorts of things. But in the event that um, you are relatively close or you can do your um, mayday mayday and get people coming, a blanket patch can be a way of filling a, a big hole and kind of um, secure it. My dad actually taught me that. I was, um, uh, we had a boat in the UK on Lake Windermere and it was parked near, is it called uh, Chicken and Hen and, Chick, Hen and Chick Rock or something like that? It's actually mentioned Swallows and Amazons it's right near, near Windermere just around the corner from where the ferry is at, um, at is it called Ferry Nab or something? Um, anyway, the boat uh, came off its mooring, broke its mooring, whatever it did. It clipped a boathouse and then it went aground. It was a westerly nomad, 24-foot westerly nomad, bilge keel boat, and the bow of it um, came to rest on uh, the shoaling ground next to the shore. Um, its bow was underwater, probably a third of it was underwater, and the stern was still afloat. And that's how it kind of come to rest. And me and my dad uh, drove up there like the day after Christmas. We'd heard this news. It was like, I don't know, 1992 or something. And um, we got there. And if, if uh, my dad might not have been the greatest sailor, but my God, in the event of a accident, you get down on your knees and pray for somebody that's that inventive and and, and mechanical and and just incredible uh, tenacity when it came to problems. Like anybody else, you know, you got a twenty-four foot boat that weighs five thousand kilos, like ten thousand pounds. It's sunk in. I don't know what would that be like six or seven maybe eight feet of water, and a third of it's underwater, and you're there with your fourteen-year-old mm, child. Well, he just, he had a plan. <laughs> I guess he was thinking about it on the way up the motorway because it was like 300 miles he had to drive. But he got this, it was actually an old uh, inflatable um, bed. 
Uh, he cut the inflatable bed, uh, like so he had a top slice and a bottom slice, and then he put um, like bolts. He wrapped the corners, wrapped bolts uh, in in the material on the corners, and then um, lashed around those. So he had like a uh, square patch, and we fed that over, and then he just bailed like a maniac for like. 10 minutes and that a little bit of lowering of the water inside the boat created a pressure from outside and then the blanket patch was kind of in place it wasn't a full hole it was like a punched in section with a lot of splits and that um but it was it was a lot of water was coming in and it, it worked and he, he got it floating a tight little like put an anchor out and then we got the engine going and the only thing he did is he dislocated his finger it dislocated his thumb actually trying to get the engine started he started with crank it was an old um Volvo, are they is an MD MD one? Is it those little Volvo engines, the single potters? The uh, it's not much past a hit and miss. And uh, he was cranking it and he caught his thumb. And uh, I remember because he we got the boat all sorted back out, dried out, and everything, got it back to the marina, got it lifted out. We're driving back down the motorway. Oh, you know what? No, we didn't take the marina, we, we put it on the trailer, and then we were driving down the motorway with it. And he used to be a truck driver, and uh, he's driving along, he's like, it's it's too far forward on the trailer. Uh, I haven't got much to offer. I'm like 13 years old. Okay, dad. Um, He says, don't worry, we'll sort it out. So we go to this um, motorway services, like a gas station at the side of the highway in the UK. And uh, he uh, releases all of the straps on this boat, which is sitting on three three bilge keels on a double axle trailer behind our like SUV, whatever it was. He releases all of the straps and resets them so that they're they're like, they've got the amount of slack in that he wants. And then he backs with not me not in the car he backs across the car park at like warp speed and slams on the brakes <laughs> this little like four ton boat whatever it was goes chugga 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 back down the trailer right up against these stops he put in place he comes out ah that'd be that and lights his pipe you know a little bit of bit of pride ties it all back down again and off we go and it's balanced perfectly when we got home we realized it's like a, a thousand liters of water still in the anchor compartment we hadn't got out so he was good but he missed things but his thumb was getting sore and sore, so he went into work the next day. He was a mechanic, and uh, and I helped him uh, there. And uh, I, I can't remember exactly the situation was, but I was there, and this guy came in who was a doctor, and Dad's like, "Oh, my, my thumb's a bit sore," you know. It's like looking at, be telling the story of like how how fantastic he was, like fixing the boat. He wasn't a prideful man, but you know, it's, it's a mechanic telling other mechanics and people like how he just fixed this boat and did everything else. And anyway, this doc's like, "Oh yeah, that's so oh, that's really." And how did that go? And as he did it, he just pulled in that exact right angle you got to do and my dad nearly went into orbit but when he came back down the thumb was back in where it was meant to be so thank you to whoever that was way back when but um yeah you know a blanket patch which is what we're talking about blanket patch can really help it's a good idea it gives you time gives you options to do something else and that might be that um, you're going to father it with all sorts of things. You're going to put wood on the inside of it. Something which we have to have for the commercial stuff on the boats is that all of the windows, all of the Perspex windows um, have to have strong backs, which is a piece of wood which is greater than the um, size of the window. And then it's got a, a, a big uh, wooden bar that goes across, again, bigger than the size of the window with a big bolt that goes through it and a... And a um, uh, wing nut. And then in the event the window blows out, you could... Um, put this piece of wood on the outside, pass the bolt through the aperture where the window used to be or the port light used to be, put the strong back on it, tighten up the um, 
the wing nut and it will bring it all together and then you can seal around it. If you have strong backs on board, that might be a great option for you know some kind of hull damage if the hull's relatively, um, if it's relatively flat in that area or it, before you uh, pull the strong back into position, you get like sleeping bags and stuff and stuff them around the bolt as it's passing through and then you tighten that lot down. Like you've got to get creative. You've got to, and the, unfortunately the thing is that you've got to, you've got to like kind of do it. You've got to like, you've got to do something which is like vaguely close to the skill set you're going to have to have. It's one of the things I want to do is actually start this, uh, I was going to call it a Mariner course. It's kind of something I've had in my head for years and it's why I got the the name for this podcast that I have. But um, a course which is meant to pick up where the RYA Yacht Master finishes and where the RYA Ocean Master finishes. Like you've got that and then you come and do this. And we do things like this boat is sinking, this mast has come down, this engine will not start. This person is seriously ill. We have to go alongside another boat. We need to do a high line transfer. Like, where's that? Where can you go and do that? I thought that might be a great thing for Spartan to move into to give people real world experiences. And even if, you know, only a couple of hundred people do it, they might talk to others and just create that environment where we discuss like what to do if it goes wrong. It's so much more relaxed to to know what to do um, than, than be freaking out about it all the time. So we're getting up there. Okay, so what else do I want to throw in here before we finish about damage? We have said that the basic way that we kind of brought this together was to say, what's a mayday? A mayday is um, grave or imminent danger to a member of crew or to the vessel. So therefore we picked out that uh, more man overboard is one of those, but we're going to do it later. Grounding, losing the keel, losing the mast, flooding, fire, um there's probably some others in there which i've um, no doubt missed but let's uh let's round this out as i said let's do the last bit if you're just waking back up now hello welcome welcome back uh we're going to just quickly discuss like how to do vhf the i'm not going to tell you exactly like the pro forma for doing a mayday because it's really obvious you have to imagine is imagine that you've got 10 seconds left on the batteries before they go underwater or they're underwater already and um you're going to pick up the vhf and the thing that you say in that 10 seconds is going to be enough that they will find you and then when it all shuts off you've got no other option they're gonna they're gonna find you from that thing so what would you say first well the first option is you got to say mayday 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 uh and it's a very good idea to say the name of the vessel again i'm not doing this like you should say the name of the vessel three times and then say mayday and then the vessel's name i know how it should go but just think about it for a second think about it logically why is it that way you got to say mayday and clear everybody else off vhf channel and then you say the name of the vessel and if nothing else happens if that's all that gets out it's likely that with AIS, somebody else will recognize, oh, I see that vessel on my thingy. And they will. And if nothing else is heard, hopefully they'll come towards you or they'll be looking that direction and the flares go up. Or, you know, the if you have got some kind of voyage plan or somebody knows where what's going on, maybe they'll be able to tell somebody, well, he was roughly here. Or if nothing else happens, you say mayday in the name of the vessel, that might be enough to 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 get some rescue to you before the batteries go. Now, imagine the batteries... It's just a couple of seconds more before the batteries get covered. What else can you say in those moments that's going to help you the most next? The location of the boat. Now, it might be that you have a lat long and it's a good idea to have a, a clear GPS. I always end up using a, there's a kind of GPS, which is from the 1990s. It was on the first challenge boat I ever skippered. And there was two of them. It was because those boats were built in the 90s. And uh, it's a Leica 
is it called like an M800 or M8000 or something like that? It's, you can get them online for almost nothing, even new old stock. And it just is it just a GPS. It just does that and it displays it like real big. It does other functions and things, but I love having that because sometimes if you get a bit too... If you get a bit too silly with your chart plotter and you're doing all this and doing all that, you can start losing the thread of like, where exactly does it say GPS on this? Now, it should say it on the VHF on modern systems. It should say it on the GPS. It should say it on the chart plotter. It should say it on like your, your watch, your iPhone. Like, where does it say that? Because if you have to pick up that VHF and give just a little bit of information before the batteries go underwater and all the lights go out, you gotta tell Mayday. You gotta say the name of your vessel and you gotta say where you are. Now, if you don't know where you are, what are you gonna come up with? You can do relative to position. We are 25 miles south of Berry Head. You could say we are halfway between Kingston and Toronto, like whatever, just come up with something which is clear and understood and you know not, not complex. We are, I can see the NAB light 10 miles to the north of me and if the lights go out that's fine okay what information can you give after that well you can say the nature of the problem because if you've got a guy in the water uh that's different don't come to the boat if there's somebody in the water they're around us don't drive over them help us look for them if you've got a fire maybe it's not a good idea for another vessel to come alongside maybe if you've got flooding if, if you told me that you've got flooding i'd be like getting my salvage pumps ready to drop them into your boat when I go alongside. I'd have mooring lines and fenders ready and I would secure your boat to mine so we can get you all off. You know, so there's different things. So you can tell them where you are and what you have, what is the nature of your emergency, right? After that, without getting into it too detailed, what can happen with sailing is you get so caught up in the details, like you get so caught up in the wood that you can't find the trees. Mayday, mayday, mayday. Uh, this is yacht uh, Falcon, 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 Mayday, Yacht Falcon. That's all pretty obvious. Uh, I am at, and then give the uh, position, and then give the nature of what's going on, and then start giving any other information that might be important. And then at the end of it, Mayday, this is Yacht, whatever it is, okay? And then take your finger off the button, <laughs> okay? You can't take your finger off the button, else no one can talk back to you. So make sure you do that. And then start doing that. If you haven't done much with VHF before, I can remember when I first started doing much more of the stuff, it's a little bit kind of nerve-wracking. I think it's less so now because we talk on phones all the time, but it can be like, wow, this is the big time. But it's no big deal. And don't worry about using all sorts of different um, jargon for it. I got to say, I do cringe when I'm watching films and they say over and out. Clearly over means it's time for you to talk and out means I'm not going to respond to anything you say. So we may have all had arguments around the house that go something like that. But at C, if you're saying over, it's like the continuation of the conversation. If you say out, there's no continuation. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, in the event of emergency, it doesn't matter at all. Over can be very useful because that means like I've kind of come to the end of what I'm saying. But more professional seafarers, certainly fishermen, they're not saying over all the time. They'd be cheapest. A fisherman would say over like billions of time in his life because they're forever chatting to each other. Just talk and make sure that it kind of comes to the end of what you're saying and then release. Okay. And then they'll talk to you. And then there's a little gap. They, if they're professional, they'll say over if it's like the uh, Coast Guard or something. And then you go back on it. Don't get caught up in like how exactly the details are. That might be something you pick up later on. But this is D for damage. It's not D for diligence in like using the correct jargon. Just get the message out there that something's up. And bear in mind that, that um, you know, even with a decent sized mast, you're probably not looking at more than 20 to 30 miles um, range. So 
the next thing after that is signaling to get people off the boat. So uh, signaling, sorry, with flares and with heliographs and all the rest of it. So I'll go into that at a different time. I'm trying to keep this inside of two hours here and failing miserably. But um, the the D is for damage. I think uh, grounding, uh, keel loss, um, uh, losing the mast, fire, someone in the water, but we're going to do that another time and colliding into something. And uh, the, the points that I brought to bear there, I hope that's, uh, that's off the cuff. I, I'm sure I've made mistakes. Um, but uh, this time, oh, I did have that note. Oh, it says Mayday. Okay, so that's easy. So I did that. Um, but yeah, if, if you're going sailing with somebody and you're going outside of land, they should be able to give you all the information I just gave you. That is nothing in there that's special. That's just you should just have that in your head, right? And why are we doing this series? Apart from the beers for boating, where I did try and get some details to, to make the, 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 the history of boats, you know, relevant and, and factual. Um, this is me just talking and trying to show like what's meant to be in an experienced sailor's head. People say to me, how do I get going with sailing? I would say, read, read, read. Yeah. And these days it's YouTube as well, right? Watch, watch, watch. There's so much information that you can draw out of other people's experiences and then apply. And you don't have to go through that massively painful potentially fatal process of learning on your own. I, re I did not read anything apart from, and I read a lot, sailing nonfiction from 2000 and 2001 probably to 2011. Or, oh, you know what? I'll take that back. So I said, oh, no, you know what? I was on Clipper in 2010. As I was going into Clipper in 2010, I knew I hadn't read anything uh, for 10 years beforehand. Just sailing, sailing, sailing. So do do that and then you can learn about these experiences and what's happened and uh and then bring it to bear uh, that's that's the thing right just have those things in your head in your metaphorical toolbox bigger and bigger tools that you can get to until you're actually at the point one day i i stood on deck with Derek hatfield on a volvo 60 and we agreed together in the event that we think there's a kind of like a uh, a you know an impact and then we feel the boat like lurch to one side as it would do when the keel is removed and the the sails are still pushing we made the decision that we'd be reaching for the uh the cutaway bag and uh and we'll be dropping the rig uh we we cut all the lured rigging and then um tack the boat on the autopilot with everybody down below decks and then uh, go out and tidy up the mess so that's not a, like a hey i come up with a crazy idea that's a conversation we had so I guess the last thing I'll say, which is just at the front of my head, I'm not going to make it too long. If you've got um, rig cutaway gear, put it in a yellow dry bag, mark clearly on it what it is, and put it somewhere where everybody knows where it is, not in, like tossed in the back of the Lazarus or something. Same thing with um, your first aid kit, with your grab bags, with uh, your tow kit, with your lost the rudder. No, I didn't talk about that, did we? You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about losing the rudder and another one, like what to do, because there is some really good advice with that, which goes far beyond. Um, I remember doing so many races and they say to you, and what will you do in the event of a rudder loss? And I say, well, I get the spinnaker pole and I get the cockpit floorboards and I drill some holes and I lash it all together. It'd be like a Viking ship. And they go, oh, OK, excellent. He's got a plan. Clearly, that would not work. But there is uh, uh, people who don't know that I think. Uh, it's been worked out. There's some wonderful stuff that's come out of the um, uh, U.S. sailing and out of um, Long Island Sound uh, of uh, a, a particular chap of uh, who I actually met a couple of years ago who sailed around for entire season in a like an Oyster 40 or something with no rudder. Uh, sailed it, went out with friends, parked it, did everything, no rudder, and he was like, "I am going to work out how to do this," and he did. So we'll we'll talk about that in another one. But um, that's another piece of damage. But uh, I think we've I think we've covered the main bit. So. 
any feedback on that i'd be uh, very interested to hear um i think it's very important that we share stories of things going wrong it's very difficult sometimes to um to admit when you've got it wrong uh i will tell you right now um i've made a lot of mistakes thank goodness touch wood it's never been anything which has involved loss of life um but i would urge anybody who's had experiences where they think there's something that can be learned to share it with people we've got a little bit of a platform here we're getting more and more people are, are listening to this and obviously over the years that we're doing this, um, people will go back and they will listen to these things. Your story could end up being spread to thousands, if not tens of thousands of other sailors. And then that moment when it's going wrong, if you can help somebody with something that you know that you've experienced and help them from having that same problem or moving past that problem, then then do share it. And that's um, csmthemariner at gmail.com. But um, now with half a cup of tea here, which is absolutely freezing cold i'm going to draw this to a close and uh, i guess with this makes more sense than ever i hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing you are safe and sound and if not immediately go and check and make sure everybody's safe and sound the ship and uh i will speak to you in the next one cheers <laughs> <laughs>